With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, you found The Portal. I'm your host, Eric Weinstein, and we're here today with my uh, good friend, Sam Harris. Sam, thanks for coming by. Thank you. That's great. So first question, are, are you in any trouble that I don't know about? Uh, I don't think so. I think you uh, you know what trouble I get into as I get into it. Okay. So I, I often look to you for... Well, occasionally accounts. I get a call from you and you say, I'm thinking about getting into the following <laughs> yeah. form of trouble to right. talk me out of it. Yeah, I'm going to yeah. try. And if, I, if it happens that I'm not there for an hour and a half, I get another call saying, too late. Yeah. <laughs> I remember one that uh, a vacation that was unraveling and I was calling you from literally from pool, poolside in Hawaii. The, yeah, the one vacation I had taken with my family in, in a year and I was I was poised to ruin it and and ruin it I did. And and I, I don't blame you for it, but whatever counsel you gave me did not did not prevent the unraveling of a vacation. Well, I'm I'm here to afford you the opportunity to uh to to ruin a future vacation, but let's try to avoid it if we can. Okay. Um I'm just curious first of, first of all, I've uh taken your advice and Tim Ferriss and Joe Rogan's and started this podcast. You were actually the first person I sat down with, but I had so little idea what I was doing that we blocked out the windows. We had an uncomfortable table in front and the feng shui, the feng shui was completely yeah, we off. Had, we had an Adams Family podcast. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so uh, we're, we're trying things. I'm learning a little bit. Um, but first of all, uh, any time you want to flip the, the tables on me, I'm game too. What is top of mind for you at the moment? Or should we? Should we, I can go into some topics that I'm you curious about? Go wherever you want to go. This, this is your show. Okay. So one of the things that I'm starting to think about is um, doing a little bit of retrospective work, trying to think about where our world, our country is. We're going into another electoral cycle. And um, I just think this is the most bizarre age imaginable. It doesn't behave like any previous time. And I hear that we're at peak this and peak that, but I don't see any signs of the, what I increasingly see is the incoherence slowing mm. down. Mm. Are you also perceiving a world that is kind of intellectually unraveling or are you seeing new kinds of formations that give you the idea that something is actually um, filling the voids that have been opening up when it comes to coherence? Well, well I, I worry that this is a kind of cognitive delusion that to, to think that the time you're in is always sort of newly chaotic or incoherent or, uh, you know, the civilization's on the brink in some new way in your time. But I, but I, I'm taken in by it. In our You've got to be kidding me. Yeah. This, this has never happened. Yeah. yeah. No, no. I mean, this, this is the, but there's gotta be some name for this where it's just, you know, it's, it's a, some kind of recency effect or, I mean, they, you know, clearly there have been periods in history where things really have been on the brink in in some new way. Oh, I don't mean to suggest that like, this is the, I mean, in general. No, no, I don't mean like World War II is about to happen. You know, World War III is about to happen. But the, um, I do feel like we are witnessing uh, several sea changes, which you know, I, I couldn't have honestly said that 
you know, 15 years ago or 20 years ago. I mean, something, you know, something has changed and, uh, it's, some things have clearly changed, changed for the worse. And, you know, maybe, maybe there's a silver lining to this chaos, but, uh, I would be hard pressed to find it at the moment. Well, so when I'm starting to think about what kind of chaos we're, we're, we're in and using the fact that you and I agree on a lot, which I think makes our disagreements more interesting because mm. I don't like the ground level, uh, he said, she said kinds of disagreements. I don't think they're that interesting for me. The big thing that's really new, um, is that I can't think of a single institution I trust. There's no place that I can go to for ground truth. Like this is an example. So that you take the New York times and you and I whinge about the New York times a fair amount. Uh, I've, what, I've been watching you transition. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Uh, I've grown pr- pretty dark uh, about the, the paper that's record. New. Yeah, yeah. Like no, five years ago, you were somewhere else. You, yeah, but but I guess I'm wondering whether the cohort before us 20 years ago had this same litany of complaints about the New York Times or whether something fundamentally has shifted. Well, I, I was on, I've been on the New York Times since the 80s. Um, okay, so you were early to this party. Yeah, I was very early to this party for- But our, something has changed. So is this is this worse than the 80s? Um, it's a good question. Depends. Worse isn't the right word in my opinion. The way I would play with it is I'd say that its problem has always been the same, which is narrative driven journalism. And, uh, the first clear indication I have of this, I think was a story about Woodstock Mm -hmm. in which the paper told the reporter, how how old are you? You're not that much older than me. (laughs) I was, I was still, I was still, uh, in my diapers. uh, No, 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 no. I don't remember this, uh, as, as a three year old 69. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, 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 it's not that I remember reading. I will clarify. I remember reading a story about the journalist being sent, who was sent to cover Woodstock by the times, uh, being told right about the filth and the, the hippies and the unkemptness. And (laughs) strangely, that's a bias that I now share. I, I, at one point I had a, the, the, uh, I, uh, there was a point in my life in my in my twenties where I kind of recapitulated the sixties for myself okay. and had nothing but you know nostalgia for the sixties that I missed. Uh, but now I have a, a a fairly Joan Didion look at uh, you know the, the slouching toward Bethlehem moment that was uh, it was uh, it just the level of dysfunction and the non acknowledgement of dysfunction uh, it was pretty shocking. So, but. Yeah. Uh, what I recall of the story was, is that the times had told the reporter what sort of story to file. Right. And the reporter called up the times and said, I, I refuse. I'm seeing something different. I'm seeing something inspiring yeah. and heart opening, and I'm not going to file that story. So if, if that's what you want, it's <laughs> and, not gonna... and I have cholera <laughs> and I have cholera. Um, <laughs> So I think that the narrative aspect of the New York Times has been both its structural reason for its importance and the fatal flaw that in essence, it carries these very long narrative arcs that come from the the editorial function at at the Times. Hmm. And that those are written in some sense before the facts are known. And so the facts are then fit to the narratives. And then when the counter narratives occur, the Times really either doesn't report the story as in, 
Uh, they really couldn't handle the the situation that happened with my brother because it was exactly counter narrative, mm-hmm. or then they distort based on the idea that they need to push things back into the narrative. So I think that has always been present. And there are particular kinds of stories that the Times writes that I find absolutely, um, I mean, I'll, I'll go so far as to say borderline evil. Um, and what they do is they crowd out whatever natural inquiry process would be happening. Mm. So I'm happy to get into a couple of examples about that, but I would say I think that the problem has been there at the New York Times all along. There are some new things that I see as as happening there, like a conflict between the old line journalists with the new line of sort of, you know, Brooklyn based writers who are telling us how to, how to think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what what do you make of it? I don't know if this, the Times may be an exception here, but I think, generally what's happened in journalism is there's just been a, a clearing out of real journalists, right? I mean, the business has gotten so bad. And again, the, the Times and the Post and the Atlantic, there's a few outliers here that are doing well in the age of Trump, at least, you know, sort of well. Um, Trump is saving their business. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they were actually, they, they weren't doing great before Trump, but now they're doing okay. Uh, but the rest of journalism has been gutted and now we basically have the the blogosphere and you know it's kind of what the huffington post did to the landscape where you just have a lot of people blogging for free uh you know propping up a a an ad-based clickbait business model sure and, um but the but again that the i i guess what i want to play with is is there something special about institutions imagine that you can get all of the interesting articles that you like somewhere and somebody's saying something interesting you can piece them together but the fact that there's no institutional home where you can trust that like you know the office of management and budget or something or but in in some what i'm saying about for journalism about journalism in general is that what you think of as the institution i mean just like the veneer the front facing website is not even an institution in many cases like you it's hard to differentiate what is a blog and what is an actual journalistic resource that has editors and fact checkers and copy editors? Um, and you know, for certain sites, the distinction is is apparently non-existent. I mean, so like you know, people used to think Salon was real journalism, or you know, the Guardian was. I mean, the Guardian has like a, kind of the blog side and the right. the Guardian side. You can't tell the difference. You're just reading what somebody wrote, and well, and you, you find know, the same people on Twitter. Uh, yeah, who are and then everyone conveying. is nuts on Twitter, whatever their reputation right. uh, really is, you know, or should have been. Well, but you could just see their their bias, like they're not hiding it on Twitter, yeah. and then they hide it when they're in their uh, journalistic frame. Lucky Land Casino asking people, "What's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky?" Lucky in line at the deli, I guess. Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Well, I would argue that I'm, you know, I'm fairly forgiving... On that point, because I feel that Trump has made the hiding of one's so-called bias a, 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 a irresponsible, essentially. It's like you, you, can't, you can't pretend that this is a normal president doing normal things no. and you're going to be a normal journalist without an opinion. Well, I agree with that, although I would say you and I 
are, are very split on this. So to put a placeholder, maybe we'll get okay. back to it, maybe not, that I'm more worried about the loss of things like nature and science than I am the New York Times. I'm now worried that there is nothing, mm. in, even in the hard sciences almost, that can stand up to the onslaught of political pressure creeping into everything that has to be able to say no, that yeah. we've lost the ability to tell people to screw off if they're wrong. Um, well, it's certainly been creeping up on us in the life sciences. It's been true of the social sciences for a very long time. Yeah, yeah. It, it probably, you know, physics and math are gonna be the last to go, but I've even seen a little bit of inroads mm -hmm. there. And so, I find the loss of, of nature and cell in the universities terrifying <clears throat> yeah. Different, differently from the New York times. Like this is, this is a few layers uh, deeper and more dangerous. Do you not perceive that? Oh, I think it's, it's there's just different problems. I don't know which is more consequential. I, mean, okay. I, I think the, uh, I think the, the failure to have a, a fact based discussion and the incentives to avoid one, uh, I think that's a, just the scariest thing we have going apart from the the, tr the true monsters of you know pandemic and nuclear war and things like that. Well, those are now increasingly relative with the you know vaxxer anti vaxxer uh, you know controversy. <laughs> right. I, yeah. But but there's the self refereeing. Like one of the things that's really important to have a decent discussion, in my opinion, is that you have to agree on what a discussion is and what constitutes an illegal move. Mm -hmm. And increasingly, I feel like we're having these combat sports where we can't agree on what rules, like is biting an ear part of boxing? Maybe mm -hmm. it is, maybe it isn't. Who's to say, well, that's an imposition of your views on mine. Um, who can still self-adjudicate? Uh, well, I think, if you wait long enough, you see the failures of hypocrisy, right? I mean, you see, you see people try to enshrine a new set of rules that prove unworkable in some of the context, you know, or, or they, they just can't live up to them because of it's impossible. I mean, we're now noticing, and it's been, you know, widely observed that more or less, if you, if you wait around long enough, everyone's going to get canceled. You know, it's like the repurposing of the Warhol quote, you know, we'll all be canceled for 15 minutes well, at some point. It's not going to be 15 you know, minutes. You know? um, and it's, uh, I mean, so we just, you know, just before we started this podcast, we were joking that, you know, Justin Trudeau has yet another blackface photo of himself apparently appearing online. Uh, and here's, you know, one of the most woke and sanctimonious uh, enforcers of this new norm of just, you know, political correctness, uh, you know, stretching to infinity. And he's, he's got uh, not only blackface in his past, but a, a, uh, apparently a positive passion for blackface. That's uh, a recurrent issue. Yeah. So it's, it's, uh, I mean, the hypocrisy is, is so delicious, but it's, just, it's just the, um, yeah, these, these new norms of, uh, not being honest about facts just can't scale. I mean, they're going, people will, people will be tripped up by them. And, well, so, and it's not to say you, we can't do a lot of harm to ourselves in the meantime or in, in certain areas. Well, I think but, we're trying to do harm to ourselves. Yeah. I think yeah. that the idea 
you know, sometimes I think about Trump as the doctor who has to break a bone that has miss, been misset in the hopes that it can finally heal properly. And this is one of the places right. where you Except and I are he's like, a doctor who d- doesn't know which bone he has in hand and, and uh, isn't actually intending to heal you. So well, it's, and he's the, the luck, it's, the, it's the happy accident of the doctor who happens, the madman who happens to have a hold of the right femur and uh, is breaking it for the wrong reasons, but to good effect. Right. Or, you know, as a doctorate in folklore and uh, from some non-accredited university. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so, so sorry to keep segue on you, but I know you have a, a passion for India. I remember once traveling in India and seeing somebody's uh, a doctor's, uh, it was actually a dentist's shingle. Uh, and it was a, you know, uh, uh, Western trained dentist and in parentheses failed. But but having just a, having just made the attempt was enough to put that on the on the shingle. Oh, that's good. Uh, yeah, I mean, you, that does sound good. <laughs> um, uh, so, I I think you get Trump wrong, right? And it's not. I, I see what you see, and I, it's maddening. It's driving me crazy. I, mm. The idea of spending four more precious years of my dwindling life talking about whatever Trump last said or tweeted or worried that I don't know what would happen if we actually had a five alarm fire uh, in the U S that had to be handled. Did you think my model of his mind is wrong or my model of the consequences of, of him being in office is wrong? Well, I think that you were slow to give him his due. I mean, of course, as, as you know, I wrote this essay on kayfabe, right. Um, anticipating that professional wrestling was going to turn out to be incredibly important. And in fact, I thought it was going to determine the presidency. That was a, a, a belief I had that understanding how lies play within the mind and how hypocrisy works and, and a concept called namespaces out of Python programming and mm-hmm. the like, um, how we compartmentalize, uh, led me to believe that in essence, we were, I had seen these other candidacies in other countries in which people seem not to be able to distinguish an actor from the character that they played, you know, right. and whatnot. And so I, I believed that the system of lies within professional wrestling told us what was possible. And Trump actually sort of came out of the WWE um, through his association with, with Mc, the McMahon family. Yeah. And I believe that he actually understood deep things that psychology departments will wake up to 20 years from now. Um, yeah, that, well, I, I guess so let me just, I, I suggest uh, I've suggested by analogy to, to the, the Chauncey Gardner effect or the evil Chauncey Gardner effect. Well, but that that's wrong. But, I, yeah, I think I think, but it's could, hard to know that could happen. I mean, it's, it's I definitely it. it's definitely falsifiable. My my theory is falsifiable. He he could prove to me with a string of utterances that he's the evil genius that I haven't imagined him to be, but he, he I hasn't bet done that. If you and I had a, a couple of old fashions between us and we sat down with a, a thousand of his tweets, mm-hmm. we could figure out that there were current structures and we could write an Eliza program to generate them to, to tangle Democrats. I, th- I think that there's much more method to the madness and I, I don't have to go full Scott Adams. Scott, I know you're out yeah. there somewhere. Yeah. Um, to, to say that everything is intentional and brilliant. I just think he's got a, a you know, it was for years I, I said that uh, if you wanted to win an election against a Democrat, you just would talk about the nuclear family, well, let them correct you to nuclear, right. and then you'd win because you, you come across the, as an ass. Yeah, right, yeah. exactly. So I think that there is a certain amount of method that you were slow to give, give him credit for. But I think you're probably inching 
towards the idea that if he's not an evil genius, he has some evil genius. I th- I think it's just again I I'm enamored of my Chauncey Gardner analogy. All right. Well, here's another analogy that, that is even simpler and uh, more easy easier to confirm. Uh, it's clear there's a method, but I think it's just a very simple method that the, the power of which is an accident of, of, of the context. So it's like, it's like an Instagram model has a method, right? You know, they just, if you have a great body, show it to great effect on your Instagram channel and then wait around for people to follow you, right? So there's it's a very simple formula. There's no question it works. It's, it, there's not a lot of method to it. But, but even it, the rallies that he likes, the rallies are a feedback mechanism. Right. So he, know, he knows that the feedback that he's getting from the press in general has a constant distortion. And so by holding a rally, he can figure out to some extent, I mean, it's like constant A-B testing. But it, but it doesn't have, the fact that he wasn't canceled for one of his sins. He was. No, but the, the fact that the fact that there's enough, there are enough people to insulate, he has enough fans of this style of, of communication and, and living yeah. that he's, he's uncancelable. Right, the fact that we have forty percent. No, no, but that we have forty percent of the American population that fundamentally does not care about any of the things I care about in him. I disagree with this, Sam. I, I, I think you're getting this wrong. This is what I think yeah. might be interesting. Okay. I'm happy to be. Okay, I'm happy to be wrong too. So you think they? So wh- at what point? I think was that we're wrong? still in the stage um, of being so angry at Bill Clintonism. Yeah, that we just want to know you're not owned. We want something that convinces us that it's not taking well, orders. But 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 we're completely insouciant on the point of you be potentially being owned by the Russians when that begins to get leaked. Believe me, I think about this. I don't know. I ha- I haven't followed all the details it's possible he's compromised and under direct control well let's just bracket that we don't let's say we don't know but when that begins to become a story and a credible story uh zero interest from the people who are worried about him being owned by the the usual you see you don't carry the same anger and passion that i do for getting rid of the rot that was the american center in other words, I believe one of the things that I find very confusing mm-hmm. is, is that you and I, I think, would normally have been called centrists. Right. But we're not crypt, we're not kleptocentrists. I mean, I've never been in a position to, uh, you know, t- to loot the treasury from the position of being a centrist. Right. So the interesting thing about the center is that the center produces the, the blank canvas of America on which we get to paint. So I'm not really super excited to get a politician that makes me swoon. I want somebody to, to just gesso a canvas so that we can build all of the you know companies and nonprofits and do all the beautiful work that makes this country amazing. I'm not trying to get my entertainment from government. The thing that crept in to our system uh, with Reagan and Bush giving way to the Clintons back to Bush and then bizarrely, I thought Obama was going to be a break from this. Mm. Um, that thing induces a passion in some of us to get rid of it. We hate it. And I don't know that you carry that passion. 
And well, so I think it's harder for you to understand it. And I carry it not from a right-wing perspective. I carry it from a progressive to center-left position. Well, on some level, this comes back to the hypocrisy point uh, right. I was making before. So I, I, I have that Trumpian module in my brain that feels just the pure schadenfreude of seeing Justin Trudeau get hoisted, exactly. hoisted on his own petard, right? So he, he here's this sanctimonious... Uh, enforcer of woke culture uh just pandering to the left it's clearly unsustainable it's clearly dishonest it's and unworkable uh and you know we offline we spoke about just that moment where he's he's um admonishing this this elementary school age girl when she says the word mankind which is a you know I'm a, it's great to hear a sixth grader use a phrase use yeah. the word mankind basis no we say people kind uh Maybe they say people kind up in Canada. I haven't heard that, but you know, even just saying humankind there and 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 uh, enforcing that that taboo there was just that's the elitism, the goofy elitism that that. Yeah, but it's not the elitism. It's the fact that these people have been picking our pockets and they've been divorcing us from each other. I'm just saying, I I get the let's just watch the, these fuckers burn. Uh, stream of pleasure that you can get coursing in your brain right and that that explains a lot of the the trump phenomenon where it's just on some level they don't care that he's the most odious liar we've ever seen they being his his fan base uh, they just love to see him wind up the libtards right they love to see not him the libtards get a, uh, sam i'm really trying to get at something i may yeah. be wrong so forgive okay. me if i'm if i'm going off on a tangent but i really think that there was something much more evil. It wasn't just that these people um, were sneering at us uh, over crudite, you know? It's like, it's that they were picking our pockets. They were divorcing us from each other. They came up with a bullshit ideology, if you will, of the, of the Davos flavor that said, um, you know, we are the world and divorced us from each other in terms of our obligations to fellow countrymen above our obligations to people who, you know, live abroad, when that was really a cover for figuring out how to make money when we were largely, in many ways, stagnant. And so you had a class yeah. of people who probably blew out the Gini coefficient for the U.S. without... Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Getting to the real issues of the fact that we're a country, that we put people in uniform and you know send them into harm's way, that we have a higher duty and care in most of our minds to each other than we do to equally deserving people overseas. Um, but for the most part, that the left was the political party that, that uh, it, I mean, everyone was part of that same extractive economy, but the left at least paid lip service to the virtue of spreading the wealth around. Well, you know, there's a, this poem, um, by Lewis Carroll about the walrus and the carpenter in, in one of the Alice sagas. Mm. And they're both going to trick a bunch of oysters into following them and then eating the oysters. And one of them is quite clear about his desire to 
eat oysters. And the other one uh, makes a big show of how sad it is that uh, they played a little trick and all of them were eaten. And the key question is, which of these two uh, figures is more reprehensible? And I always disliked the one who was terribly sad about what they'd done. And I think that's the left. Yeah, there's something to that. But I, I think there's also uh, the all too common phenomenon of people motivated by actually good intentions, even incredibly noble intentions, causing a lot of chaos that they didn't intend, right? So, I mean, take... Is that is that your model for what was going on? Well, it's 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 my model for part, part of it. So, you, so, I mean, take someone like... Well, we take, you know, Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook, right? Well, I, mean, I don't know Mark. You know, I don't know how mercenary he's been from the beginning or and, and how out of touch with the, the possible harms... Uh, he might cause he's been but uh, i can well imagine that here's somebody who could honestly say connect you know connecting people is an intrinsic good and i'm just going to do that better than anybody and the you know the wealth will come and this is all good for everybody right and then only at the 11th hour you know long after many of us have have noticed a problem he begins to trip play catch up with the problem that's a, that's a, a fairly charitable view of, of what he was up to or the you know, the Google guys, you know, don't be evil. Like, I, I don't think when they said don't be evil, they were, you know, twirling their mustaches and and winking at each other, knowing all the while they were going to create a a juggernaut of um, uh, instability for and, and also get um, fantastically wealthy and anchored to a, a, an extractive and, and ultimately unethical new kind of surveillance economy that um you know we're, we're going to be you know hard pressed to change um i don't think I, at what point did they grade into having consciously bad intentions or consciously intentions intentions that were so mercenary as to be unethical but it, but a pure case of this it, for me falls in another sector not economy but foreign policy you look at somebody like samantha power right who you know who wrote this famous book on genocide a, a problem from hell um, she, you know, she drew lessons from our failure to intervene in a place like Rwanda, right? At, that, that we were morally culpable in some basic sense for not having intervened, right? We could have stopped the bloodshed. We didn't. And we even had, you know, Navy SEAL teams. I mean, Jocko was just on this podcast. Jocko, I think, was offshore, right. uh, you know, at the time. Um, and, uh, we, we, you know, we had drawn the lesson from Somalia, seeing our, you know, the, the Black Hawk Down incident, seeing our, our uh, soldiers dragged through the streets, uh, that we just c can't get involved. And what happens when you are the, the one superpower and you decide you can't get involved? Well, then people, you know, butcher their neighbors and there's no way to stop them. Um, so I think with the best of intentions, she and many others uh, drew the lesson that we really do have to be the 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 world's cop on some level and we have to get involved and we're morally culpable for not stopping a, a rape in progress or a murder in progress. And, but now we're on the other side of that, uh, you know, U-shaped horror curve where we now know what it's like to get involved with however mixed intentions. And we, and it's, it's a, a thankless job, right? Like build nation building 
is not a is not a, a job that we're going to want for for a long time and for good reason. Well, I actually have some weird backstory on that one. Uh-huh. So I I knew Samantha Power at the Kennedy School, and she and I sat down. I mean, not well. I think we sat down at a meal. We had friends that connected us. Right. And I asked what you were it. What what are you interested in? And she said, Well, I'm obsessed with the Red Sox and genocide. Yeah, I said what? That's a good icebreaker. <laughs> um, yeah. And she said, well, you know, the, the rap on me is I'm all genocide all the time, but nobody cares. And I, you know, I've got this book and I can't figure out the answer to the question. Why is there not a resolution that we will never, why is never again, not a resolution? And every time I try to get a state to sign up for this or somebody to take this seriously, there's this weird wall that comes down. And it's the clearest thing in the world that we should never let genocide ever happen again. Right. And she was convinced that nobody was going to take her seriously. This was going to go nowhere. Mm-hmm. And then progressively, somehow this thing started to catch fire. And I, for a period of time, I was emailing her like, do you believe it now? Do you believe it now? That this, Cause I, I, I knew this thing was going to get huge. I also knew that it wasn't going to work because it, it just, it comes from this beautiful place that is not really deeply beautiful. I mean, it's sort of meretricious. It's, appealing, but it doesn't understand what the forces are that create genocide because very few people want to go that deep on that question. And in that case, I saw a human being who I I can just vouch for. This was the purest of intentions early on. Hmm. And then as the complexities started to reveal themselves, she became enmeshed in a very difficult series of trolley problems or, you know, trolley like problems. Right. I believe that that partially happens in places like Facebook and Google, but very often, I think it's your theory of mind that I'm going to take issue with, which is that I don't think people are as unified in their thinking. They very often have a mercenary part of their brain and a beautiful part of their brain, and they have a partition that keeps those from talking to each other. And one of the ways in which I found this out was when a group of people, doctors actually, in New York City, uh, wanted to sort of use me as a consultant for my mathematical and analytic mind. And we, we went out for a very fancy dinner and they said, I said, what's the topic? And they said, reconceptualizing medical debt. I knew nothing about this. And essentially what they told me is, is that if you go to an emergency room and you agree to have all sorts of things done, mm. you don't feel like paying exorbitant inflated bills later because you feel like that was an emergency. I had no ability to, actually could, think this through chop around. Yeah, exactly. And this is extortionary, but if you give somebody the ability to say, okay, what, what if you pay us 82 cents on the dollar and we'll, we'll let uh, 18 cents go. Then suddenly the, the, um, the performance of, of that debt skyrockets. Mm-hmm. And a phrase came out which was when they talked about reconceptualization, they said, it's a beautiful thing. And I realized that I had heard that phrase in New York, whenever people are up to no good, it's a beautiful thing. Mm. Well, it's a beautiful thing. You know, it's just, and so I then put out this thing in my group, which is, did you notice that when people in New York do bad things to other people, they always say it's a beautiful thing. And sure enough, it caught in people's minds. So whenever anybody started to say it, they realized, oh my gosh, I'm in a part of my mind that recognizes that I can transfer wealth from somebody else to me 
largely without the other person knowing it in a mm -hmm. way that results in benefit for me and some harm that's been externalized. I think that people both know that they're doing tremendous harm and carry the idealism that propels it. And that's, it's the combination of these things and the fact that they don't talk to each other. Yeah. Well, I think people are, you're not going to get me to disagree there that people are impressively split or at least can be. And I think, uh, coherence generally speaking or at least striving for it is good i mean i think you know living an examined life in part is 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 struggling with the, those discoveries of, of incoherence and and figuring out how to to get this congress of mind as you call yourself to actually cohere but you're getting them to cohere yeah no so but I, so I, but when you're talking about the normal person who i i think it is a a frequent phenomenon to be to have you know normal the, the normal range of good intentions to not be a sociopath to want to help the world uh, to be in philanthropy for instance right to, to to actually to be this i mean you're already if you're devoting your life if you're a you know a smart person who you know got a good degree who could work more or less anywhere but you decide to work for for a charity right you're already an outlier you're already somebody who said no to wall street or no to hollywood or no to something and now you're working for the you know the southern poverty law center or something like you want to just stop racism right so you're already right. one of the good guys right and um but so you i mean you know this is a example dear to my heart uh, that i flog uh, at every opportunity the southern poverty law center is you know i think was probably consciously started for the best of intentions, operated under the, uh, the you know the, the the blindingly brilliant light of of those intentions for a very long time, uh, but something flipped. And one thing that flipped is that, and it's probably unbeknownst to to everybody, there's a bad incentive problem here. I mean, the, the the only way they survive as an organization is to continue to stay at in this sort of long emergency mode of there are nazis everywhere right everyone it's like this is a problem it's a four alarm fire give us money we've we now have a budget of whatever it is you know 30 million dollars a year i mean it's got to be huge uh and uh you know the fundraising drive never stops and so what happens to an organization like that when you begin to run out of nazis well, then you got to you have to find more, right? Like you can't. You, the incentive is to never recognize that you've gotten a handle on the problem, right? It'd be, it'd be like you know, in some you know epidemiological space where you know you're curing smallpox, but you could never admit that you've actually cured it. You have to pretend to find smallpox everywhere. Now, I'm not saying obviously, I'm not saying white supremacy or white power or anything has been cured, but I, but what has happened is you have people who probably were true outliers in their in their yeah. ethical scrupulosity who are now behaving in appalling ways you know destroying people's reputations calling them nazis when they know they're not nazis well let's be let's put a finer point on it they are now more likely to let the genie out of the bottle because of their bad behavior or to you know huff and puff on an ember uh, that is the pathetic Ku Klux Klan of, of 2019 right. to actually create something that could, uh, that could turn into a roaring fire. I mean, this is a general feature. I often talk about this in terms of magnetic and true North, where the angle of declination that separates them is very small at the equator, yeah. but 
in northern Canada, it, yeah. it it's, it's very large, yeah. right? And it, and uh, at the at the pole, south is everywhere. Well, that's right. Yeah, right. And so it's just the problem is is that the institution. I mean, look, I've made this point elsewhere, so uh, regular listeners will have heard it. But the concept of the embedded growth obligation, the ego of an institution, which is that it has to do work and grow in order to um, meet its mandates, that is the thing that has metastasized throughout our institutional structure. And so it's not the Southern Poverty Law Center. I mean, that's particularly egregious, but the entire university system, every single um, measure you can take on that thing looks like an intergenerational wealth transfer right down to the non-dischargeability of student debt and bankruptcy, the loading up of every university by administrators and the monopolization uh, at the moment. Almost 100% of our leading institutions are run by a baby boomer, whereas the average age in a different era of a university president would have most of them under Gen X control and some of them under millennial control. There were university presidents in their thirties, mm-hmm. uh, who had a huge impact. I mean, that is a system which has gone totally metastatic. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, that may be an outlier. I mean, this is the, the way it's the worst, it's the yeah. worst large system of its kind. Yeah. I mean, the way costs have gone up there, you know, way outpacing inflation, medical outpacing medical. Inflation. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. And the fact that you can't, discharge your debt in bankruptcy perfect yeah and the fact that you know many of our friends have spent a lot of time complaining about this but the fact that you have whole fields that are essentially you know sham fields right that are in the humanities where it's just pseudo knowledge is being imparted to the next generation Uh, and it's, it's not only its own it's not walled garden of pseudo knowledge. It is a disparagement of real knowledge. Like so, like the, the anti-science, you know, moral panic that is happening in the humanities. It is a it, fit mimetic complex. Well, it's it, apparently it's fit. It's fit thus far. I mean, it's it's producing new graduates. Yeah. Well, and it's colonizing things outside of itself. Well, yeah. I mean, the, journalism, the problem, tech, yeah. journalism, tech, uh, human resources, anything which is a high leverage but often poorly paid uh, for the level of uh, intelligence uh, usually required or the amount of training usually required becomes attractive. So there's a perverse incentive when you can't pay journalists or scientists uh, or even technologists at appropriate levels. I know people will scream, say, oh, you have no idea how much money tech people get paid. And I I really don't believe it. I think that those jobs are supposed to be even better compensated um, because of large scale tampering in the sector. What I believe is, is that we're looking at um, the difference between truth and fitness. And if you recall, mm-hmm. when I went first went on your program, I said, I care about four things. Truth is one of them, but I also care about meaning, fitness and grace. Mm-hmm. This is a great example where fitness is out competing truth. Uh, but we have a hand in this. So we can tune the landscape. Right. So, so, this is, well, Sometimes yeah, I we, just feel yeah, it's like yeah, two yeah, of us. Yeah. That's why I call you Sam. What the hell's going on? Yes. The, uh, a, a, a relatively small number of people can do it. It's not. It's not. It doesn't take seven billion people or eight billion people. Who do we got at the but, moment? No, but like you, you, you need to convince the top, you know, three thousand people that one way of talking doesn't work. 
right? And to, to, to align fitness and truth more faithfully. You know, I mean, this you, is, I'm not used to disagreeing with you this much, but I, good. I, that's why I came here with right, my, good, with good, my, uh, good loaded alter prepared. ego. Yeah. Um, Sam, I think we've screwed up a lot worse than you're imagining in the past. And that that is the fodder for the twin evils of Trumpism and wokeism. But just, just grant me the, the possible sea change effect of the 3000 people, the, the right 3000 people fundamentally getting their heads straight on, on these issues or any issue, right? Whatever it is. So you're talking about basically all of Hollywood, all of journalism and all well, of, we all of science that's public facing. If right, we could like, do that. Yeah. Okay. In some, some yeah. thought experiment. Yeah. I guess what my feeling is, first of all, is, is that my head is so filled with malware. I've got, I'm running so many nonsensical programs put there by other people that I don't even know are nonsense where I can detect. Do you have a sense of what direction to point oh to where God. you're, you're going to find the nonsense? Well, so yeah. for what are you worried about? Yeah. Well, so we, we're currently sitting in a room with reflective glass and anechoic tiles that deaden sound. Mm. If I echolocate by things that I am absolutely positive would sell newspapers that aren't printed, um, that it's like, okay, you're echolocating and instead of hearing uh, the reflection off of glass, you're hearing a an absence, which is anechoic tile. And so if I just look at Google Trends, which tells me what people are searching on, mm -hmm. if I look at how Google auto-completes, which tells me what they want me to see is what other people are searching on in the search bar, right. if I look at what stories aren't being run, all of the dead stuff is astounding to me right at the moment. Like, I know, for example, that people are fascinated by the Jeffrey Epstein story. Mm. And yeah. in general, like, you know, we just had... Right. So normally I don't love talking about current events because it dates the program, but we just had uh, Kevin Spacey's accuser uh, reported as dying. I don't think that that is likely to be part of some super evil plot. So right. just so people can calibrate, it's not that everything that could make sense because there's an incentive I chalk right. up to a conspiracy. The Jeffrey Epstein thing is totally different. And you and I both met this guy um, for 15 years, and he's the only person I've been saying this with conviction about for 15 years. I had one meeting with him. I've said he's a construct. Somebody hired a person, probably named Jeffrey Epstein, to play a role, super genius, me mega billionaire philanthropist. I wasn't buying any of it. I've never bought it, and I've talked to everybody in our sort of mutual network, mm -hmm. and I always used one word because I wanted to make a huge bet that when the time came, I would say he's a construct and that I would be revealed to be correct. And that everybody always asks, what do you mean by a construct? Right. Okay. Do you need to, have you clarified that on your podcast before? Probably Did, not. Okay. I, I, I recorded an entire Jeffrey Epstein episode, which is just me soloing for an hour. Right. But I haven't released it because I'm terrified. Huh. And I've had one ambiguous dinner where somebody sort of quasi threatened me and I wasn't entirely sure what they were saying. It was a little bit huh. creepy. Um, well, this is a, uh, a strand of human complication that you're way more in touch with than I am. I don't deny that it exists, right? So like, I think there are real conspiracies and the, and powerful people occasionally, you know, do what uh, well, p powerful people are occasionally sociopaths and then they, then they do 
what you would expect or conspire to do what you'd expect. Um, so I don't have a strong feeling about well, let's just take the some, likelihood some... that Epstein was was had a facilitated suicide. I think the likelihood that he was murdered is is low, but I, allowed agnostic. to commit suicide, I don't have a strong. I'm agnostic feeling. about that. Whether whether some people stepped away so that he could do the thing that he right. needed to do, whether there's some vanishing probability that he actually isn't dead, I don't know. Uh, Not interested. That, I put that at, at very low. Yeah. I put that at very low odds yeah. as well. Yeah. But, I, so, but, but you, you know at, I'm a fan you put it of this. At zero odds, Sam? Well, I wouldn't. I know enough about probability to, to put almost nothing at zero odds. It's a huge, huge difference between those people who insist. When I hear somebody insist that that probability be zero, I take right. a, but, a, but And that person is smart. But effectively, effectively zero. I mean, zero in the sense that I waste we don't no have time. to worry about it. I waste yeah. no time thinking about it at the moment. Right. But I'm happy to have my Bayesian priors tutored. Right. Okay. So I, I just don't have a... I mean, as you know, I'm taken in, or, or uh, I, I utilize this homily that you, you shouldn't ascribe to to malice. What can be explained by incompetence or whatever that the formulation and is. And I find that that's a interesting heuristic for somebody. It's as, u- it's usually I think it's usually true, right? So like it works much of the time, and then it it fails. But it fails in a case where you get more information, and then you update. Your, well, that's what you know, that was. That was exactly my point. That the Kevin Spacey thing, I would say, is in the realm of Newtonian mechanics. Right. And then the Jeff Epstein thing is like relativistic quantum field theory, whatever your Newtonian laws are. We're not in Kansas anymore. Right. But I had no, like, so I, you, you put me in the same room with him. So I should probably clarify that. So I had, I found myself. We in should a, both apologize. Nothing yeah, happened. Yeah, that's right. Um, I, uh, I found myself at a lunch with him at the TED conference mm. and had no insight into him or what he was up to. Apart from the fact that he, you know, my sort of creep detector went off. I and I spiked like crazy. Yeah. I mean, I just, he was someone who I didn't want to spend any more time with because he had this sort of uh, schlocky, rich guy. Uh, but within uh, normal? Uh, well, no, no. I mean, it's just, but like when you see a, I guess he was probably, you know, close to 60 at this point and, uh, you know, he's with a you know 21 year old you know it's like it's like the, the optics of that are all i mean it's, obviously there are many rich guys who do that you know and there are many you know, certainly many people in hollywood who do that and you know that's just the way people some people roll when they have the opportunity to roll that way and that, okay fine but he there was just a i have a kind of a level of you know judgmentalism around that right you know it's like at, at minimum that's a a uh, an attractor on the on the landscape of of well-being that is uh not all that interesting to me and so when you see someone captivated by that like this is like life is going great because i'm 60 and she's 20 right like that's right. the one variable that that We're talking for, about his lamborghini right? all the time exactly yeah, right, right. So I, like, okay I you've you've you know you've bored me already um so uh but I had no more insight into him than that. I mean, I, I maybe exchanged so didn't re- you know, three sentences to, with him. From one meeting, I've been talking about him for 15 years. Right. Yeah, no, because this was like a 10-person lunch. Okay. And I had maybe, you know, three sentences exchanged with him, you know. So, so mine was at his house. Right. Um, I'm ushered into a waiting room. He's got some super complicated electronical electronic art. I get up. I look at it. And I say, wait, is that is that a camera inside the art I first think I'm a genius for finding a camera inside. The, yeah. My next thought is I'm supposed to find the camera inside the art because the 
the ca- the art is supposed to draw my attention and I'm supposed to see that I'm being recorded. Um, I'm called out to a uh, room in back with a huge, long, sort of exaggerated dining table with a giant American flag as its tablecloth so that any food or drink that is served on it may spill onto an American flag. Right. And I'm just in high alert, like, fuck you. Who, who, who are you? Right. And he comes in and he's got this attractive again, over probably 22, 23 year old woman. I think she's introduced as an heiress or something. Right. And he's bouncing her on his knee uh, in order to get the, my attention. There's some other guy who says nothing during the meeting. I have no idea what he was doing there. And I think I, one detail I'd like to add here in defense of the many people and the many scientists who were in this guy's orbit and who didn't know how, uh, unseemly his life actually was, uh, some of these young women who you'd meet in his company were not just, you know, bimbos or strippers. Or, I mean, some of these people were going to medical school and these were, these were like smart young women well, who were, and, who, who and were benefiting no, from no, their this association This is an incredibly important distinction. I don't think that the news media has done a good job of teasing out. It's very attached to the idea of Pedophile Island and Lolita Express. Right. And that lazy, sensationalist journalism is crowding something out, which is that in general, from what I understand, it, so I met him in 2000, I think 2004, maybe 2003, but before his Florida uh, incarceration and, and charges. Hmm. Most people that I knew who met him, met him with young adult women. And so my theory is that he was constructed to be the sapiosexual Hugh Hefner. Right. And that they stupidly hired probably, and I guess I don't know this, uh, Humbert Humbert for the role. And that that dichotomy explains at least a lot of the initial um, willingness of the science community to play with this person. That I mean, I'll be honest, I'm not particularly judgmental about consenting adults, even if it's probably ill-advised, you know, to have a 50-year spread between two people. If somebody's 20 and somebody's 80, and it's just it's a completely different thing. It's it's very easy to see that if you've seen this guy be uh, sort of the womanizing schmuck. Right. In, within the bounds of you know total legality, you know, he's surrounded by twenty year olds, and you know he's got a, a forty year and everybody's in age. party to the game and you would, something about you, money. You would never, you Just, would never suspect this other thing about him. Right. right. Okay. So that is not a fair defense after the Florida situation. The Florida situation changes that structure. You mean his his prosecution or, well, or the, a lot the of Miami the, Herald thing a, that came out like a, lot, a year ago? No, no, no. The prosecution. Right. So a lot of people continued to talk to him in part because, and I think this is something that hasn't been teased out. Um, he was supporting a, an older style of science, which this is again, something that's going to be super complicated, uh, was much more disagreeable. Now the woke movement has seized on this as, well, that's the cowboy oppressive science of, um, male assholes. But he was supporting a network of people who might not have been supported otherwise to somewhat break out of the mold. And because the U.S. government had stepped away from that work in, in, in large measure, in my opinion, yeah. people were so dependent on him that they were eager to look the other way. And there was also the hint, I think, that this wasn't really Jeffrey Epstein, that this was really something else funding. Hmm. Oh, I don't know about that. I mean, I, I think the the relative 
penury of science is a corrupting variable. I and mean, the fact that we, we underfund science yep. and that it matters that when the rich guy comes into the room, right, to, to scientists because they're so starved for money, that's just that's just corrupting. Well, of, of, but of look, this is, I, I've been on this, this is going to get us into the immigration question, which is that the in the mid 80s under Reagan, the science complex, um, particularly the National Science Foundation under Eric Bloch, mm. um, through the National Academy of Sciences and a subdivision called the Government University Industry Research Roundtable, GUIRR, conspired to destroy the bargaining power of American scientists by flooding the market. Um, and what they did is they did an economic analysis with both supply and demand curves um, to say that the wages, which you can calculate when you have two intersecting curves, were going to go above six figures for new PhDs. So and then, let's get a lot of Indians in here. And, and Well, it's four, it was four countries. It was uh, China, India, Taiwan, and Korea. Mm-hmm. And China went from zero to 60 and like no... Yeah, they were sending us nobody, and then they, I think there were like over twenty five percent of all graduate students. And of course, graduate students aren't students; they're workers. So there's right. a cryptic labor economy inside of the universities. And what the university system figured out was is that in order to get this work done, we'd have to have this these misclassified students who do the work imported as foreign workers. And what we would do is we would take the economic analysis, which they secretly did in nineteen eighty six. Um, and they'd subtract off the demand curve and they just do a supply analysis based Mm. on the demography of the baby boom going into the baby bust, which is our generation, Gen X. And that demographic alarm was sounded to get the immigration act of 1990 passed, which has like the H one B is one of its most famous features. So that's, that's a whole story about how the actual workings, I'm I'm the guy who who uncovered Mm. that. And I, I chased that all the way down to the person who wrote that secret study that was never released, never dated, never authored. Right. That thing um, was the stepping away of the federal government from its co- its commitment through the Vannevar Bush Endless Frontier Agreement to fund the kick-ass blue sky research that this country has done better than anyone else. But how is that distinguishable from what on its face seems to me to be a a rational policy, which is why not try to attract the world's best and brightest and incentivize them to start their businesses here, settle here. You know what, once you've gotten your PhD at Harvard, you know, you, you've got a green card and you know, here's your, here's, you know, the Silicon Valley's over there. You know, I mean, so what, when you start speaking, I feel like I'm hearing the stars and stripes forever. I've got one hand over my heart and the statue of Liberty is in the background with Emma Lazarus's poem at the base. Do you actually believe that? No, but no, but no, my, my point is that strikes me as a good policy, even though that would create more competition for, for, you know, so-called Americans, right? Because we're, we're now open for, for the world's business. But uh, if you actually wanted to maximize, you know, creativity and, and, um, industry here you would want to import indians and chinese and taiwanese and koreans well i i mean look i i've married the maximum number of brilliant women from the developing world who came here to do stem that the law will allow right right so i'm absolutely guilty you you got your wife and then you want to close the border what yeah yeah well first of all that's how country clubs work 
Right. Right. So the idea so is that when you get through a country club, when you get into a country club, you don't instantly say, well, I don't understand. Uh, it would be immoral for me to close the country club. I mean, so a, it's a very weird thing for me that people who are very steeped in what you were just talking about, which is this interesting mimetic complex that got pushed out, mm. um, don't tend to think critically about it. Of course, we want the best people in the world to come to the U.S. selfishly. I mean, you know, well, well, not everyone doesn't. I mean, the person who has to compete with the best coming from India and Taiwan and China. Yeah. Uh, that person, let, let's say in, in uh, you know, software engineering, that person has fa is now suddenly on a much more competitive playing field. Uh, and yeah, this is this is. So what I was told about this, I, I'm, well, I'm just not, I'm not saying that it's not without cost to somebody. It's, it's definitely uh, costing somebody something. Right. Right. Like the bad people, the people who no, can't no, compete. no, not the bad people, but just it's it's like I don't even know how to go into all of the things that are like really funny and wrong about this. Like one of which is, uh, well, are you afraid to compete with somebody from India? Well, maybe I'm afraid to compete with a hundred people from India. You know, like the the, the issue is what is you, the you price are, though. point? You're competing on this podcast. You're competing with people from India. I mean, you're competing with you know, no. There are eight hundred thousand podcasts. No. You're you're competing with with seven hundred ninety nine because it's not a uniform because it's not a uniform product, Sam. No, but you're still it's still when a landscape. Talked, no, when you talked about software, uh, right, right. Most of software is glorified foreign while loops. Let's not, you know, you 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 invoke a library, you code up yes, a class, you can outsource it. Yeah. All right. Well, no, no. It's just I'm just saying that most of what it is is you're just writing code yeah. and it's got a kind of a mystique about it because a lot of people haven't done it and it's too symbolic, whatever. Right. But it's plumbing and it's yeah. plumbing. Yeah. And a lot of science is plumbing. Yeah. And so a lot of the stuff about the best is not very relevant. If you wanted to take the stuff that's really distinguished, you know, like you've got Ramanujan coming from India, yeah. you know, um, you've got, uh, you know, Ellis coming from South Africa, wh whoever it is that's really amazing. We have plenty of room for the tiny number of people who are absolutely non-homogeneous super contributors. So you're just saying you want to set the bar higher. I'm not saying that. I'm saying a lot of different things. One is that people in a country have rights and they have asymmetric rights to their own labor market. That's a large part of what it means to be a citizen of a country. If I start to talk about your rights that are perhaps your most valuable economic possession, mm. if you really think about it, the American worker's most valuable economic possession is asymmetric access to the American labor market. If I say, you know, your right is not an asset, but is instead an impediment, it's a barrier. And what we need to do is get rid of the red tape. And I'm not going to pay you for it because it's not an asset. I'm going to take it from you. And I'm going to say that that's what the free market is. Well, that has nothing to do with the free market. I wrote a paper called migration for the benefit of all mm. that pointed out that you're free to securitize people's right and pay for it. Right. And then everybody wins. Yeah. That's okay. not what we do. Okay. So, but that's, that's something we could do though. We could, we're not we could put an economic, uh, that would be a Kosian price on, right. on that. It's called a right. Kosian solution. Right. And the funny part about it, the, the hysterically funny part about it is that no capitalists who claim that they're interested in getting rid of the inefficiency that comes from being forced to use your own labor are interested in the model in which 
you actually pay people for their securitized rights. Because the real thing they're interested in is not the tiny inefficiency, which is called the Harburger Triangle. There's a giant structure below it called the mm. Borjas Rectangle, which is what is mm. transferred from labor to capital. The, the amazing thing is you've referenced this several times over cocktails yeah. in the, the last two years. Yeah. Well, but, so, but my this, point- This is a well, because cocktail you, party chatter. No, but I see it differently, yeah. Sam. I see your comment that- um, well, don't we want the best and the brightest where you don't reference wage competition? It sounds more like intellectual competition, right? When you, when you, right. when you open a border and selectively only in certain fields, it's like opening a window in an airplane and it specifically affects the seat at which it's opened differently yeah. than everywhere else in the plane. Right. Right. So the, the problem I have with this is that it's a large mimetic complex and get it popping back up to the Jeff Epstein issue. Mm. The entire university and scientific complex was built on this incredible um, embedded growth obligation. Right. That is the thing that caused the system to have to rescue itself with immigration. So it's really not about immigration or brown people or I don't want to compete against the best and the brightest. It, the issue was we didn't have enough people to feed into a pyramid system. And what you could do is you could you could reference a poverty differential between Asia, which was training people acceptably well in technical subjects, but had a, at a lower level. Now that's mm -hmm. changed some to fill in the bottom of the pyramid. And so that's really what it was. It was an economic exploit that has nothing to do with the best and the brightest or the color of one's skin. It was right. just a way of saving a pyramid scheme. Well, I, so clearly there's room for innovation on all these fronts and we should be eager to do it. And we should be certainly eager to find Ponzi schemes that we didn't know were Ponzi schemes, right? Like, well, I think it's, we, uh, again, this cut, cut, touches where we started when we were talking about Samantha Power and other, um, uh, in the Southern Poverty Law Center. I think there, there are systems we set up uh, with the best of intentions and, and you know, projects and, and meme, you know, memetic complexes we launch, uh, you know, upon the world with the best of intentions and we don't see the way incentives will align or the, or the, you know, the knock on effects uh, or the externalities of, of doing those things. And I mean, it's just, the world is more complicated than we realize. Well, and that's what was, so that's like the thing that scares me a little bit. Remember when I said that I have malware in my head? Yeah. My belief is, is that a lot of the beautiful things that you were thinking about, about being open to the world, training the best and the brightest, keeping some of them for ourselves, distributing some of them back home to grow the pie for everyone, et cetera, et cetera. That's a mimetic complex that I, th I associate with malware. It's not that there aren't aspects of it with well, movement. But it, I think it's close to the right program. So for instance, if okay. you, like, like if you say, yeah, it's, it's the fact that I'm not thinking when I say that about the, uh, uh, I forget how you put it, but the, uh, the, the, the difference between uh, the local case and the imported case, right? right. You know, I mean, by, by analogy, you know, opening the window on the airplane um, or just the fact that, you know, that you, you've got people here who are paying taxes to help build out local infrastructure that some, then some Titan of industry is going to leverage and globalize Right. And, you know, that money is not coming back to the right. people who are paying taxes. To these games, the, right. the, the totality of these games is what yeah. got us very angry at the Clinton era people. Yeah. Is, is that the, the, the Brad DeLongs and Paul Krugman's and 
Jagdish Bhagavatis and Bill Clintons of the world, all these people pushed out this idea and we didn't know how to, how to oppose it. But what they were doing was allowing a slice of our country to continue to, to grow its slices of the pie. Mm. But again, it's, it's just easy to find the non-nefarious, not malignantly selfish understanding what, what happened. I, I'll, I'll, I'll give you another example, which, which I, I think you was, you're totally familiar with, but will seem less sinister, uh, or at least it, it seems so to me. So you, you take what happened to the music industry, right? Yeah. So it's like you, we have a, a, a breakthrough in technology. We go from vinyl to CDs, and then I mean, those, you know, we, we suffer those jewel cases for about a decade, and then we get MP3. MP3s, um, which open the door to piracy of a sort no one has anticipated, and then we managed to close down the piracy. We have the you know the iTunes store, and people are but but because of this this explosion of piracy, and now the prospect of of, of just you know now it's all bits. It's not atoms anymore. Um, we have a, a just a, a fundamental devaluation of the product, right? Like the music, the, the music, the value of the music has basically gone to zero, right? Because my my using a copy of it is not is not taken well, it because from you. of two things. It's, and, and it's it exhaustibility just, and excludability. So right, the idea yeah. is that if I buy a, a vinyl record, one, my use of it will eventually wear down the grooves as exactly. we used to do in the old days. And right. two, my having the record means that you don't yeah, have, have that copy yeah. and that the the per the unit cost yeah, is not zero. Yes, I can't copy your record for free. Yeah. That is this issue about private goods and services became public goods and services. And even the diehard economists who are free market have to recognize that if something is inexhaustible and inexcludable, price does not equal value. And therefore it cannot command its value. So that was clear to many of us just as- But I'm, but I'm saying there's a non-nefarious account of what happened there where your iTunes, right? Your Apple, you open iTunes for the good of all, right? But you, you obviously want to make a profit, right? This is a fantastic business, but- when if you're the musician right. who now who's now whose catalog is now worth you know one tenth of what it used to be worth, and now you're you have this sort of life change foisted on you where now the only way for you to make ends meet is to tour, but you're you know seventy years old and you you know you you felt your touring was behind you, right? All of this looks awful, but again, nobody was thinking about that guy when they when these changes bullshit. It's easy to see that most people weren't thinking. Were, no one, no one had bad intentions toward that. No, guy. This is, remember, information just wants to be free and free yeah, like so beer and all Stuart this nonsense. Yeah. I thought that stuff was just like moronic at the time. Right. Okay. And, and the same thing with NAFTA, right? The claim, but not, what, but not. But again, so so what you had in your sights was not. You can't. I don't think you're you're you have the wrong theory of mind if you think. Everyone was aware of what you were aware of and just had the, the, the ethical no, no. switch flipped in the other direction. Okay. The class, the economic class, teaches public goods in every Econ 101 textbook. Right. They also teach trade. They have two different names for what happens to improve a society um, in terms of uh, how it's measured. One called... Pareto improvement, which is that everybody in the society is as good or better off. Mm. 
and the other one called Caldor Hicks, which is some people get hurt, some people get helped, but were you to tax the winners to pay the losers, everyone could be Pareto improved. Okay. When you ask these people in real time, why are you talking about a Caldor Hicks improvement in Pareto terms? So this is the technical esoteric conversation. Why is your exoteric description of this at odds with your esoteric? All right, this is pure Straussian cryptic bullshit. Mm. They said, well, we can't really say that. And we hope that somebody, it's not our job. It was this wall of total nonsense. And it wasn't that this wasn't being said in real time. It's well, that the I, number of yeah, people. I'm sure you can find the people at the conference who were, I mean, it's, you know, they, have, they, have, they have one way of speaking to the profession and one way of speaking okay. on the, the op-ed one of the page of the New York went, Times. This is one of the reasons why you and I split on Nassim Taleb. I stood shoulder to shoulder with Nassim during the total nonsense called the great moderation in our financial structure right, mm. in, before 2008. Right. And this, I, I, yeah, the only reason why I've split on Nassim is that he just wakes up one morning and, uh, you know, off his meds and attacks me uh, for reasons I can never but it's not fathom. Just, well, right? So it's like, it's, it's totally personal, like, or it's, it's intended to be personal. It's not that I take it personally. I mean, I actually, I don't even think it's intended to be personal, but I, he can correct me on that. But Look, it's, a, it's apropos of nothing. Like I've been, you know, I've been sleeping when he was sleeping and then I, I, I turn on Twitter and I see that he's attacked me by name okay. for some reason. When so, my phone so, lights up and it says, there's Nassim, no, there's no intellectual content. When it says Nassim Nicholas uh-huh. Taleb, uh-huh. I mean, he's been my friend for a long time. I literally shake like I have to hit right. Right. Okay. Answer. Well, but that's a problem of his personality that he's exporting to the environment. No, you're, it, you're part of the environment. Look, Nassim is not an inside cat. He just isn't. I see the things he does and, and I get, I get a lump in my throat and I think, am I going to have to defend this? I know, I know what he does, but I think people don't understand him. So at least let me offer up uh, an apology for, for Nassim Taleb, which he may rip my head off for saying. Nassim is constructed around things that are much larger than what other people are considering. And I don't, I'm not saying that he does everything well. I obviously have a totally different tack than he does. So I'm very uncomfortable with his methods, but let's at least say what they are and steel man it to the extent possible. Other people say you, 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 Joe are misusing statistics. Nassim would say there's a problem with statistics. Yeah. And it's constructed to be misused and it's misused all the time in the same way. And if you do anything that you were normally taught to do in statistics class, if you have a PhD in statistics, you're part of the problem and I'm going to hold you personally responsible. Right. Now this is very disconcerting to people. Yeah. Um, Except, I mean, so, I mean, I, I don't think we should spend a lot of time on this, but uh, there, there are areas where I am not qualified to fact check him. Right. The areas where I am, where his opinions are just as strident, it's just a, just a deluge of bullshit coming from him. So, like, you know, his, the stuff he has said about religion and science is not even. I mean, the truth is, it's not even wrong. It's like it's 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 incoherent. It's not like he's got a a counterpoint that I still think is wrong, but you know, it has to be argued against. Look, I've gotten it's there. It's just this vomitous. Look, I've you know, gotten there too. I can't stand the style because it just hurts me. Like it just, I'm very uncomfortable by it. However, there are plenty of times when I thought he was talking nonsense 
that like at first it sounds like he's making a sensible objection. Then I'm just like convinced this is he's going off the rails. Right. And then I push further and it turns out there's even more of a point. So I have learned to be very cautious around him, not because he's the person you want around for most of the time, but when we were in the middle of the great moderation and I, I punked out because I was, I was with him and I was giving talks about Epstein and Madoff. They were the mm -hmm. two mysterious functions in New York. Right. And I used to put slides up about black arts capital. Um, it was sort of a play on like Blackstone or Blackrock. Uh, mm -hmm. And the idea is we'd tell you what we're doing, but we'd have to kill you. Right. Um, the, we, we just didn't know. And I, I got Madoff wrong. I thought he was front running his, his legitimate business, which it turns out was just a Ponzi scheme. Right. Um, but I, I knew Epstein was very likely to be something totally other than he was. Nassim, during this period of time that we were both discussing the nonsense that was the supposed great moderation, hmm. was the other guy who would take as much punishment as the community would throw at him. And they would just humiliate him. It's like, oh, he made one lucky trade in 1987. The guy's an idiot. He's a blowhard. He's a fool. He's... And I couldn't take the pressure from giving this talk that obviously we hadn't banished volatility. And I think around 2005, I was about three years in, and Nassim says, you know, you're going to regret getting out of this early. You should see it through. And it always stuck with me that I didn't quite have the courage or the strength or the guts or the disagreeability to continue at least to hold the intellectual position. I couldn't time when this thing was going to blow, but it was, you know, I wrote this thing on mortgage-backed securities with Adil Abdulali in 2001. Hmm. Um, this was nonsense and it was a world in which almost no one was willing to call it out. And so the singularity in my, in my world about Nassim has to do with, he he's willing to be one person against billions. He, he will, right. he will literally just stand up against any crowd. Okay. Well, so that's, that's often a bug and you found the one case perhaps where it was a feature. But it's, uh, I mean, first of all, we're all like that to some degree. I mean, we, we're, we're all standing up it's against very hard a lot. For me. Right. And yeah, but it, I mean, I, I do it and you do it, but yeah, it you don't should, get weak need. I get weak need. Well, yeah, occasionally, but it's, it's, there is a kind, I mean, again, I'm not to psychoanalyze him, but there's just, there's a sort of Trumpian level personality problem layered uh, on top of his intellect where I, i'm not disputing the guy is smart he's uh, there's no question he's smart but there's just there's so much personality to get through and wrangle with to interact with whatever whatever smarts are showing up for you know, d depending on the topic um, and again with some topics you know I, I haven't found the smarts but i'm not disputing that the guy obviously he's intelligent it's just he's so there's no one more enamored of his, his intelligence than him Right. And it's just it's like that level of egocentricity. Again, it has a kind of Trumpian, you know, peacock fan uh, quality to it. And in in the cases where it's warranted, it's still extra and is bullshit and it's annoying when it's unwarranted. It's embarrassing. And he has zero sense of where yep. he is on, on that I, landscape. I hear what you're saying. I, I do have the sense of the number of floorboards that I can hide under when the stormtroopers come for me are very few and far between that I can count on mm. and I can count on his. Okay. But the, so, so, you're, so, you're, so we you're, don't need to derange on that. You're far. putting a high price on person. I mean, I, I get, well, no, I'm you love about on, on, on personal loyalty. On, yeah. Well, but you know, Sam, I, I honestly, I find the same thing about you. Yeah. Where if, if I'm in a storm, 
you're one of the tiny number of phone calls I can place. And it's yeah, very yeah. odd for me that. Well, I would want you to, I would want you to feel that way. And, I do. Uh, and I absolutely do. So, pick, so when I call, pick it up and. and yeah, yeah. Uh, Okay, but you need like, not you need not shudder at what's coming. But getting getting back to the to this large so with all of these very dangerous and disturbing topics, I start to understand that you believe, and I I think it's correct, that we can often get to hell through a road paved with good intentions. Yeah. I don't disagree with that. And the and the converse is also true. You can have you can have good effects of of bad intentions, and that's uh, and you shouldn't you shouldn't credit the good effects uh, too highly there, you know, right. because like the, the, I think intentions matter for the most part. I mean, intentions are the operating system. So because like if you're, if you're iterating on your intentions, if you're, if you're error correcting right. and hewing back to, to the, the outcomes you actually want, right. That is, those are the people we can collaborate with, you know, when they're, uh, when they're ethical. The, the the people who are right by accident it's how, or, or, or producing good things by accident are uh, it's, you know, it's how it's how we encode this that's so interesting to me like when we order veal we just say the word veal we don't think about what it is that we're causing yeah. to occur yes. I want the I want the three minute video before I eat the veal yeah. exactly right like very few of us do yeah. that um, when I think about like how Debbie Wasserman well, so, but, Schultz, that, but that's why I don't order veal right that, that that's a difference at a certain point. Too much information has a consequence, right? Like I, I, I'm not comfortable with veal or foie gras, right? Yeah. So it's like if, and it would matter. It should if, if you said, well, here's veal, but this is veal. This is pain-free veal, right. right? This is veal that was, you know, synthesized in a lab, no animals involved. The problem goes away. So that's that. That's the fact that there's. You'd want there to be a difference there. You wouldn't. I mean, well, take the most extreme case. You wouldn't want to be the person who would pay more for the veal if you knew there was more so suffering associated with it, right? You wouldn't. We wouldn't, wouldn't want the per, be the person who for whom the suffering is part of the pleasure, right? That's the they're, they're, that's clearly a, a place on the moral landscape you don't want to be, and yeah, and you don't want to be associated with, right? So if that's at all unsavory, then there's there are many gradations of, of better than that, right? So well, it, it, this gets it, back it, to my issue about orcas are either the best or worst species. Uh, right. Yeah. No, but I, I, I didn't mean to derail you yeah. there. But it, it matters. Like we we need to unpack the mimetic complex and get at what's inside. And it matters if we if we fail to. If there's a lot inside and we we're, not, we're unaware of it. Sure. You know that that matters. Okay. How often are we just saying veal? But, but for example, what I remember when Debbie Wasserman Schultz was being interviewed about superdelegates and she said, they're not superdelegates, they're unpledged delegates and delegates. And, and, and why do we have to have them? And I think she said something to the effect. And if I'm getting this wrong, I apologize. Something like, well, you wouldn't want um, the, the, the people who aren't regular um, party workers, you know, just being able to take over the party or something like this. I was thinking like, oh, that's what we all think it is, that it's a primary and that the people who are registered Democrats should figure out who they, they should support as a candidate. Her point was, well, we have to have a thumb on the scale, otherwise democracy might happen. Right. Yeah. And like that thing is how we encode the badness. We encode it by creating some different way of talking about it. 
how we how we encode it or we fail to encode it how it becomes operable or how well nobody's a bad person in their own mind most of the time yeah most so when i do bad things uh i encode it differently so we were just in a in a situation where um we were waiting in a very long line of cars for an off ramp and our car you know sort of zoomed ahead and then asked somebody's you know uh understanding that we would cut in right towards the exit Right. So, you know, sort of high-fiving, like, geez, we almost got caught in that really long line. Later in the day, somebody cuts in front of us, much less of a, a, yeah. a, a, yeah. of a problem. It's like, can you believe that guy? And, and right. so this this way in which we sort of see ourselves as the permanent, like, good guy protagonist, in the first case, okay, but, being savvy. Yeah, but so don't you think living a good life is, in large measure, a matter of squeezing the the delta between those two states I think of mind you think that that's true and yeah I think, uh, that's I think why that's, it was a leading question i know yeah i know but i think that it's actually much more tricky um well, so let's take the the antithesis what if i told you that i thought it was a matter of getting uh broadening that gulf right so to be more extremely at odds with oneself depending on what side of the table you're on and those you like, see, so i think you would have been you, less likely to cut in line mm-hmm but if you did cut in line, I wonder if you'd be less likely to notice it and talk about it the way I do. So I think that your morality and my morality differs slightly. I don't think you're giving me, you're giving Nassim Taleb too much credit and you're not giving me enough. Oh, is that so, right? So so I am. I see I, you as pretty consistent in a lot of ways. Yeah. What I aspire to be is to uh, to cut in line the right amount. Okay. And to be a, appropriately non-judgmental when I see someone else cut in line well, the right so it's very odd I, i'm i'm pretty close to that yeah um i mean I, so i don't have too many illusions about what it is to do it and what and but what it is when somebody else does it so i don't i'm not as and when i catch when i i, I occasionally catch myself in that that mismatch between uh you know who i'm capable of being in one moment and how judgmental i am of somebody else right. in that same mode but what i would say is, is that noticing uh your own sort of issues makes you a better person if you can port them more generally so in other words if you say look i i I recognize that um you know i'm not the i'm not the best around food or something but yeah i am very conscious in some other area like being timely well if you can recognize some ha- somebody else's failings as akin to your own in a different area and port right. that right. that's a way in which like being in touch with your own hypocrisy um i think makes you a better person and i worry about people who are trying to rid themselves of their hypocrisy rather than but, first noticing it and then sort of minimizing it so that it is it's less garish but to, yeah but to be to truly want to minimize it you have to be in touch with it right so that's right. You, you run those that's you know, those are two pieces of software you're running at the same time. Well, it's, I think it's more like I don't see any prospect for ridding myself of it. And other people say, oh, I caught some, I have to get rid of it. You know, it's like, it, it's, it, it's, well, it's an imagined state that they could, but I can I, I prove agree. more or yeah, less yeah. that you can't live without it. We, we, because you're not a unitary thing, right? Like you the, aren't the, a unitary thing. Right. And most of us, yeah. even though we know that we still treat ourselves as unitary things, which is bizarre. Yeah. Well, I, well, you're you're I in the mindfulness I, I, space. Yeah, so that, that's I work kind of, I work hard not to do that. Either, yeah, but, but I, yeah. I I don't have an app and I don't do do these practices. Right. But I'm still very conscious of that fact that I'm not 
I'm not unitary. Yeah. No, I mean that if you follow that a little bit further, that becomes very interesting because you're not. A, but that doesn't mean you. There's not. A, there's no norm you want to to aspire to follow, right? Like you, you can be. There are faces of your mind you can prefer to others, and oh, yeah. and, you, and you can. And there's also something that happens when you're when you cease to be taken in by your your different selves and all these different modes, right? To the to the normal degree. Then you can actually. Then there's a kind of freedom to, uh, to navigate to a to a kind of a happier well, but conversation. Talk, but there is some way in which you're, what you're talking about is that one of your parliament of selves is yeah. that your meta self, which you're probably getting as close to identifying with unitarity as anything else. Well, it's just there is in, the, like more, the, the more the more you see the subroutines you would probably call sam harris well i would it's 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 more diaphanous than that i mean ultimately it's just consciousness i mean the only thing that can supervise anything is or be aware of anything or experience anything is what i'm calling consciousness now that's not when you really pay attention to what that's like it doesn't actually answer to the to the name i or me i mean it really is just it's just this open space in which everything's appearing including thoughts and intentions and desires and emotions and there it really is a, a cacophony, but the cacophony changes the more you fall back to this position of just witnessing the show, right? And so, um, you know, it's like you're, you're um, I guess I mean, one analogy that's actually fairly apropos, is like the difference between dreaming and lucid dreaming, right? The more you lucid dream, the more you actually can kind of change your dreams. I mean, that's what it that's is to point. be. Yeah, but it's like, but you're still, you know, there's a consequence to being lucid and in your and uh, being perpetually lost in thought, being perpet, being identified, not noticing, not noticing thought as thought, being identified with every intention that that surfaces in the mind, is really d deeply analogous to be to being asleep and dreaming and not knowing you're dreaming. Right? Well, you're in a situation you're not recognizing. Well, it's interesting because sometimes I can't actually use the information. So, for example, when you went into the don't we want the best and brightest thing, right. I thought, oh, my God, Sam is going to drag me there. And that in, way he's going to be the, the guy who believes. Well, no, because <laughs> because there is no thing called xenophilic restrictionism, which is what most of us are. Certainly mm -hmm. I am in, in my belief structure. Yeah. And the idea that every single news organ is ready to call any restrictionist a xenophobe. I'm thinking, oh my God, Sam is dragging me to this place. He yeah. doesn't even know it. No, I, and I'm starting to get angry and, and, and agitated and excited. Well, and there was nothing I could do to actually, uh, I couldn't find any control knob. Right. But so, so, I mean, to come back to, to, uh, to earth where, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, something more concrete than pure consciousness, the, I'm aware of the potential hypocrisy in judging people. Like, so, like to take, you know, I just kind of shit all over Nassim Taleb, right? Um, I am totally, so I, I don't believe in free will. Yeah. I know he didn't invent himself. Like, the, there's a place in which I'm totally non judgmental uh, of him. And uh, these, you know, he can't do otherwise, right? He's just, he's just being the perfect version of Nassim Taleb, as is Donald Trump, right? Like, that's just. It, and in Trump's case, the thing that I'm judgmental, I'm not especially judgmental of him, you know, I mean, he, he seems like a malfunctioning robot to me, right? So he's, he's just, 
what I'm judgmental of is the larger situation of all of this happening and and half the population seem to be pretending that there's something optimal about it, right? That's like that, that, that that's that's so terrifyingly risky to me that I think it's appropriate to be in touch with the the outrage module rather than the non-judgmental oh we're all nobody invented nobody created themselves module and um but i i pick and choose my moments of outrage and i get off the ride as soon as it's there's no longer as soon as i notice there's no reason to be on it's no longer adaptive yeah so it's like how much time am i gonna so now like in my use of social media like i'll get on twitter i'll see something outrageous i'll get triggered by it but I mean, I'll get off 30 seconds later and it's over, right? Whereas if I, if I were to do the thing that entangled me, you know, it could, you know, it could take up much more of my life. And, um, so well, it's, it's very interesting to me that you've gotten off Twitter as you've become more focused on the meditation and mindfulness part of your offering. Right. Um, I mean, I, there's the, juxtaposition there may be somewhat accidental but the 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 vividness uh, like it, it uh, there's there's a spell that's been broken for me okay. with respect to social media like i i i and actually i had paid lip service to this and just didn't know that it was just lip service but i had been talking about twitter and social media generally as a, a psychological experiment that we were running our, on ourselves to which no one had consented, right? We just enrolled right. half of humanity in this thing and we're just, you know, let's see what happens. And it's it's clearly a, having effects that are at best non-optimal, right? You know, at, at worst, you know, catastrophic. And um, I, would, I was talking about this and thinking in these terms, but still totally embedded in in the activity of, of taking Twitter seriously and, and, okay. and feeling that it was a professional necessity. And on some level, it was just, it was just sticky enough, you know, emotionally like this is, you know, cause I'm getting a lot of my news that way. I'm, I'm following smart people. I want to see what articles they're reading and there's an opportunity for conversation. And then somebody like Nassim Taleb says something, you know, outrageously stupid that is, per, you know, Right. Directed Personal. at me, right? And it goes it's going out to hundreds of thousands of people. And so, you know, it's an opportunity for me to tell them to fuck off. And so I, I find some way to say that. And this thing begins playing out. And to the degree that I've stepped away, which is like 95%, now when I come back and I see, you know, some of my friends, I see you, you know, embroiled with, you know, you know Claire Lehman or somebody. And it does look like I'm now in touch with the. Well, you saw that get diffused. Yeah, no, that, that, and I think the skillful diffusal of those conflicts is its own public good. That well, the we, thing we should, is, is I've, I've tried been, to maximize. Yeah, there are people that I can't that. diffuse because I don't think they want the thing diffused. Like you got into some, you went on this person nice mangoes podcast. Yeah, that was that. that talk about a, a no good deed going well, upon you, you, you it. You know, there's, there's just something. I did wrong. my best to launch your podcast. There's, well, there's yeah. something wrong with that account because there's many ways in which it seems quite reasonable. Yeah, and then that, it just, it just graded a, into mental illness. Well, there's now, a personal yeah. there's a personal nastiness about it that just that yeah. doesn't let up. Yeah, and a lack of charity. And right. what I find is that there are certain things I can do to slow down 
that kind of uh, negative experience. And then there are certain diehard actors, some of whom are quite polite and charming and funny, who just will not, like their thing is they will ride this to the most negative place if they can get there. And that sub community, um, I've been talking about in terms of, we have diversity and inclusion, which I'm willing to say is a good thing. And then it needs a different function, which is interoperability and exclusion, because there's certain people who can't be at the table for a conversation if it's going to progress Mm. and because their, their interest is in derailing. Now I got into some weird thing just now. Do you know the singer Billy Bragg? Uh, no. He's like a progressive, he's kind of like a punk Arlo Guthrie or Uh or Woody Guthrie rather. And like, he turns out he wrote a book and he's talking about Eric Weinstein, an investment banker who is a free uh-huh. speech, uh, you know, champion, won't meet with, I don't know, some whole, he's got a whole story in his mind. And. Oh, so he took a shot at you in, in his book? He went and, on Sam Cedar's program. Oh, well, there's a venue that is not going to select for well, I, I, I honest spoke, opinions. I spoke to Sam. Look, there's a problem with the Saul Alinsky thing where, Saul, you know, Saul yeah, Alinsky's yeah, yeah, rules, for radicals. rules for radicals. The, the focus on ridicule. I think it's hard to remember like country Joe and the fish was ridiculing a bad war Mm. in terms that are ridiculous. You've now got a group of people who, if a mathematician says, you know, that in, uh, in different, um, arithmetics, you could have an equation like two plus three equals one. And so then you get somebody saying, (laughs) I don't know what they're smoking over there at Princeton, but yeah. it, well, that's ridicule, but you're ridiculing something that you straw and didn't understand right? because the person actually was making sense. And so what I see is that the left and in particular, the Sam Cedar crowd uh, has a doing that with abandon. Well, it's willing to do two separate things. Sam is quite willing. Like there's this whole thing about, will you talk to Sam Cedar? Will you debate Sam Cedar? And my feeling is I would debate part of Sam Cedar the part that just is focused on the ideas, but the part that is kind of like nasty and, ridic- and ridiculing and doing the Alinsky thing. I don't know what to do with it. I'm not interested. In it. I've spoken to Sam Cedar on the phone. It's perfectly reasonable, mm-hmm. ma- made sense to me. We disagreed on, on positions, but. Well, the, the line that gets crossed for me always with these guys, and again, it, it's, a, it's disproportionately on the left, is the, the line of, conscious dishonesty. I mean, it's your, it's your brother's aphorism. Bad faith changes everything. Bad faith right? changes everything. And I mean, these guys are in bad faith. They know they're lying about, in, in my case, my views, my my actual beliefs. And Not all of them. They, 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 there's just too much information. Well, David Pakman. No, David Pakman's fine. I just did his podcast. Yeah, I know. But yeah. David Pakman said some pretty non-charitable things in some parts that seemed kind of ridiculing. And uh, of me? I, Think or, you, me, other people. Well, I haven't. Whatever I haven't, I ha- I've never seen him m- misrepresenting my views. And I think that. I mean, I, again, I don't know him. I just did his podcast once, but he seems like the. He seems like somebody who, if I said, "Listen, you got me wrong here," that would matter, and he would he would make an effort to that's, get me and, and that's get the me thing, right. Which is yeah. the problem that we have increasingly is that the tactics that are being used in what are called progressive circles have been confused with the content. So that is the objections to the vehicle 
which might be Saul Alinsky's rules for radicals, um, which, which is conflated is with a the totally payload. unethical uh, program for smearing people dishonestly. Well, it, like, no, like, it's like, an, it's like, an you, you think technology. Well, no, it's no, it's you're just it's an ends justify the means. That's the big problem on the left. Yeah. So, but the, 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 that ethic is is flawed, right? So, like, so for instance, I mean, like with me and Trump, like, there's nobody who uh, you don't like de- the guy. denigrates Trump as avidly as I do, but I am super careful to be honest, right? So, like, I it's not that because anything you can, you can smear him with is fair because right? you can be Sam. I mean, well, the problem with some all of these guys can be Sam Cedar can be honest on his show and still have a show. Right. Nobody's going to cancel him because he was too honest. No, I, I think that there's like this very weird other. I mean, Sam, I don't want to get into the Sam Cedar thing in particular, first right. of all, because he's going to do an entire show. We know you're going to have Sam. But we'll um, take these quotations. And no, but he he has the, see, he has Pacman's ability to reason. I mean, that, I, I got this to, is the banality of evil, right? Like there's not that many evil people. Right? There's just a lot of people who are functioning in some normal mode with 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 normal incentives and they become assholes because they're not heroes, right? But so like it, it takes some work not to be an asshole when you are incentivized to be one. And and can we're, I, can all, I, we're all vulnerable to this, but there's some people who have just cashed this, in to go for it. That nonsense on the left makes me crazy because in part it just feels like all of my ideals turned into some piece of yeah, crap. We're, that's, we're of the left. Not only the left, man. I came from a farther left part than I don't even. I don't even know where you started. But yeah, no, I mean, okay. I've never been tempted to be anything other than a Democrat. I've never even said I'm going to be an independent because you know the Democratic Party. I'm certainly, isn't me, if I right? could, if I could, if I could move to another party that made sense, I'd do it at yeah, this point. Yeah, but yeah. Anyway, I think that what they, I think that what we don't really understand is is that there's a homelessness problem that is really significant. If you are the sort of a person who needs to attach to some kind of institutional structure in a time when there is no institution that actually holds your perspective, you're going to start to do very bizarre things. Now, the thing about you mm-hmm. and, 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 and me is, is that to some extent, and I don't think we can do this long term, we're okay with being homeless, right? You can right. sort of first principles, try to think your way out of stuff. But well, it's, well, it's very tough for, for most people. And I think that there is there are these sort of collection points in the adaptive landscape of politics. Would you, would you disagree with that? Yeah. Well, one thing that seems important is the, the connection to science. I mean, we're not spending a lot of time talking about science in this mode, but the, 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 the dispassion and self-criticism that is the like is the only rubric under which real science can be done bleeds into our thinking about all these other issues i mean i, I think that's that's got to be a relevant variable it's, it's it's like like you either have a scientific cast of mind or you don't and when you don't i have both right but when you when you don't you're see you're not seeing the um i mean just not even you're not even seeing intellectual dishonesty for what it is right it just it's just like like motivated reasoning is, is isn't a bad thing right wishful thinking isn't a bad thing confirmation bias isn't a bad thing these are virtues this is in religion well, this is faith right this is this is you know well this is like always the, the issue with with our friend jordan peterson which is that 
when he gets really far out there in the, I don't know, people now call mythopoetic. I don't, I don't know the lingo. Yeah. Um, you always wonder, are you still maintaining a fact checking uh, ability to, to bring you back to earth? And so yeah. as long as those two facilities are present and in dialogue, and as long as the fact checking, you know, what we, what we call the scientific method is in some sense inadequate to me to explain how science has progressed. Right. All the mad thinking and then the spirituality of coming up with breaking new ground well, doesn't You just happen. gave us Ramanujan about an hour ago. Yeah. So he's he's having dreams about the goddess Lakshmi handing him theorems. Well, there's, yeah. there's that, so, you know, the Kerala school of astronomy that came up with infinite series before Newton and Leibniz hmm. was doing it in religious poetry. You know, it rhymed, I think, in, over there in Kerala. So there is a there is a kind of madness that you have to invite to break new ground and there's a kind of sanity that you have to invite to wrestle with the madness and um our our friend dan barquet came up with this idea that science is a two-front war but that most people are have only been deployed to one front mm. and i think that nice that's image. a really yeah. it's a really nice image um i do worry that in part the activist mindset particularly on the left has a very clear idea which is that um yeah, it's really a shame the number of people who have to get hurt for justice to be done. Right. And that is a highly conserved idea that I had not understood was was broadly distributed. Yeah. But I mean that that is a an ethic or a pseudo ethic that we have to just relentlessly criticize because it's, it's so much harm gets done. I mean that that is the the thinking that allows good people or otherwise good people to create immense harm. It's like, let's, yeah, throw, throw them off the rooftops because they, uh, you know, the, the purge is on and it's, it's sorry, we have to break these many eggs to well, make this omelet. But partially the question is how do we spend enough time together to get past this problem? Like, I, I really think it's quite serious that well, part, part of it is, is that we're not actually doing much of this face to face, right? Like I've never met Nassim. I've never met Sam Cedar. I've never met any of those, they shouldn't have been in the same sentence. They have very different problems. But um, if if I had, if before any of this had happened, I mean, Sam Cedar, I think, has done probably a dozen shows. Or I mean, I, I'm always getting someone's always sending me a video that he he's made that you know I don't watch, but I, I log the fact that there's a yet another export from his world where he's uh, he's attacked me. Um, the if I had had lunch with him before any of this ever he ever took an interest in me. There might have been a very different well, effect. That's why it's I like, had a phone call with him. It's the fact we've never, you know, we we we're, there's, this is, look, there's this no is why I, anchor I, to civility, and you, you know, you Nassim is a friend of yours, so you have a you, there's a kind of a loyalty effect, or a, a just a fact, you know, you you have a different relationship to his flaws, knowing him as a person, and I the same things happen to me, like the fact that I've hung out with Jordan or Ben Shapiro. Well, you saw what happened with Claire. Let's talk. Let's talk about the Claire situation. Okay, that would have been different had you never hung out with Claire. Or it might have been different. No, I think there was a more serious issue, and it just didn't. It, well, it was so, the flip it around. It, it was more of a betrayal, you know, or a seeming betrayal, given the fact that you had hung out together. It wasn't just coming over the trance. The betrayal, of in part, was was my betrayal of Claire. I just didn't know it. Well, whatever. I'm just saying the no, dynamics no, 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 no. change but, if you know each other. Right? At, I'm, at trying, any I'm level, trying to make a different point. Right. When somebody you know behaves in a way that is very most unexpected, right. like what I try to do is I try to slow it down. I say, I bet we're watching two different movies. Yeah. 
and your story and my story are not, the gears are not lining up. And so if we just push on the gears, the teeth are going to pop off and it'll be the end of everything. And so with Claire, what I tried to figure out is why are you repeatedly sort of coming at me? You know, do you need to burnish your credentials that you're objective, that you don't have tribalist loyalty? That was one set of issues. But there was another issue, which is this, that Nassim had gone after Claire and I was silent. Mm. I didn't want to get involved in it. I, right. I didn't like the way Nassim was going about doing what he was doing. Absolutely couldn't, couldn't take it. Didn't like right. it. Detested it. On the other hand, I have a particular bug in my bonnet about IQ and race which is that I, I think it's an absolutely dangerous topic that's being explored in a really bad way, even by good people. Right. And that in part, I, IQ has this curse that I've said, it's a pretty good measure of intelligence. It would be much better if it was obviously terrible or really terrific, mm. but it's in exactly the wrong place that it does tell us something about intelligence and not nearly enough. So you can be a genius right. with low IQ. Right. That problem, um, you know, was being teased out and neither of them, the reason I stayed out of it is just, I, I didn't believe in Claire's position as I understood it. And I didn't believe in Nassim's tactics as I understood them. And Claire interpreted that, I think, and I don't know this to be true as, wow, you know, you're seeing me getting mauled. Right. And I thought you would be there, you know, or something like that. And so in part, just backing up everything, slowing it down, trying to listen you know, Ben oh, and I have gotten good. sideways a few, a few times. Uh, to his credit, every time I take something to Ben Shapiro, he'll think better of himself, and he'll, he'll yeah, come. yeah, yeah. No, I mean that, that that's my experience as well. Um, Even though and red meat for a is lot. part of his business, yeah, yeah. No, that counts for a lot. So, so the 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 place where we've we've reached some kind of bad faith singularity, right, is where I think okay, there's like we just have to cut our losses. There's no conversation. For, like that's why I would never talk to Sam Cedar in a public forum. He's, he's proven himself so committed to the singularity. I mean, he's it's like, there's a bunch of, I can, there's maybe 20 people who are just on this part of the landscape where there's no coming back from it. I mean, there's coming, you know, obviously there's, there's an appropriate, any conversation that would have to happen would have to begin with an actual apology. I'm like, it's just so bad. There's no alternate movie version that's exculpatory, uh, right? These these people know they're lying. They're they're avidly lying. It's all malicious. It's all it's all it's all Solinsky. It's all just smear, smear, well, it smear. Well, it, it is Solinsky. Right? But the look, the best that can be said for it. And again, I don't get along with it. Right. Is I believe that they think that they're in desperate times and they believe that desperate times call for desperate measures. And that's sort of the mindset, which is the ridicule is necessary to stop a greater evil. And that entitlement, yeah, but, as soon as you start experimenting, but, but ridicule, ridicule is not the problem. It's the line. That's the problem. It's right. You can, you can, if, if it's, if it's I, an honest can, joke can I be at honest? somebody's expense, I, I've probably fine. watched 45 minutes of Sam Cedar total. Yeah, well, that's, that's more than I've watched, but I've watched enough to know that these are people who, when they're trafficking in, audio of my podcast that's been edited, oh, yeah, edited well, to show the opposite of what I was saying, and they get a thousand blistering comments telling them about right. this, 
they keep the audio up or they they they, they, they don't well, they, they never that, they never I, correct an error i agree right? but that's what's coming out that, of it that's psychopathic behavior you know it's like uh, well so, wh- so, whether or not they're psychopaths so, they're acting like all right but then we've got a giant chunk of our world and in part a lot a lot of the sense making apparatus that is explicitly amongst itself psychopathic it believes that it is under threat and desperate times and desperate times call for desperate measures this is its opportunity and it's going to do things it's going to be the thing that I didn't understand about it because I came from the left hmm. is, is that it just explicitly thinks in that's too bad. Right. I'll, I'll, I'll get you a Kleenex next. It's just this dead cold heartedness that yeah. progress requires that good people get hurt. Boo hoo. And, 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 and that thing is so hardcore. That's going to make that, that makes the Trumpian backlash understandable. Right? And that's, and that's really in part what I'm trying to get at, which is, is that, when I went to Washington in like 1996 on immigration issues, I went into some staffers, like some warren of cubicles, and I saw the sign on one of the cubicles that said, if it's worth fighting for, it's worth fighting dirty for. Right. And I came to understand that if you wanted to survive and thrive and get stuff done in Washington, that that had been absorbed almost universally. Right. And then once I realized that, I had to make a decision. Did I really want to get good things done or did I want to stay a person I could live with? And that's very painful to actually have to think about. Yeah, but I, I think that is an easy choice or should should be. We want to, make a, we want to create a world where that's an easy choice. Right? We want to create a world in which that's an easy choice. What we've created is a system of selective pressures, which may actually end up selecting for that over and over again. And you don't realize, and this is the this is the issue. The reason that so many of these things make me angry, like the uh, the great moderation, or the abuse of the immigration uh, system to mm-hmm. decrease wages, and then you cry xenophobia when somebody points it out, uh, or NAFTA and a lot large areas of the country get really hurt, and you're saying everybody's going to be made better off, is is that all of these things I can see in real time. Like right now, what I can see, like those things of the past. Mm is I can see this weird, and this is getting back to the Jeff Epstein thing. There is a deliberate attempt not to talk about the intelligence community and its links to Jeffrey Epstein. And it is clear, and it's a very short proof, because assume that he had no links to the intelligence community, like none whatsoever. Somehow a member of the Trilateral Commission, affiliated with Rockefeller University, Harvard, Mm. no links to any intelligence community anywhere in the world. You could sell papers debunking the claims that people want to know, which is how is this guy tied in with the intelligence community? Right. So you're saying it's fishy that no one's doing that. Well, I mean, it's beyond fishy. In other words, you have something that everybody's demanding and wants. If it weren't true, Hmm. you could get paid by showing that it's not true or making the best argument possible or making fun of how thin the the claims are. Well, that may yet happen. I mean, I, I get, again, I don't know that somebody isn't writing the 5,000 word Atlantic article on Epstein. that's going to answer. Dude, something. how long has it been? This guy supposedly commits suicide. We don't know whether, you know, what branch of the right. decision tree that's on. And you can search, go to the New York times and search on intelligence. The, the thing I, I and, and Epstein, hmm. like it's not being explored. It's not being shut down. It's like anechoic tiles in your echo locating. It's not what you're hearing. Go to the search bar and search for things that people are discussing that don't come up. 
And that's what's telling you that there's something very, I mean, this guy was a, apparently a serious sexual predator. We're in the, an era of me too. Right. But there are anomalies like that. I mean, the, 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 the clear anomaly for me was, and it's one for which I don't have any sinister explanation. I just think it's an anomaly of the news cycle we're in. Right. Um, it's sort of what Trump has done to our, our information diet. When the Las Vegas shooting, you know, right. perpetrated by a man whose name I don't even know, right? And I'm a, kind of a student of these things, but I never even took the time to learn the guy's name. I think we, you know, many press reports d- oh, but that has a, decided that has to not use his name. No, but this was the biggest shooting in American history. Right. Right. And 48 hours later, nobody was talking about it. Well, now, that's not true. Ver, ver, yeah, that's like it was. It had fallen out of the news cycle very and nev- never came no, back it, in. It vanished right. very quickly. But, but there, you. I don't think there's any reason why it vanished, apart from the fact that we just don't have the bandwidth for it anymore. It's like that. There was no. There was no link that made it uh, clearly ideological. I mean, nothing surfaced. He wasn't a clear white supremacist, or he wasn't a jihadist. I mean, there was no. Do you remember they, the word bump stock? Yeah. Yeah. So the bump stocks. Okay. So, we, so why weren't we talking about bump stocks? Yeah. So we banned bump stocks as a result of that thing, and that's the that's the legacy of that that atrocity. But the if you had told me at any point beforehand that you know on you know whatever day of the week it was, you're going to have a the biggest mass shooting in American history by far, and it was going to be. A, a fairly cinematic one, right? I mean, it's like you're talking about you know shooting out from the windows of a. Did wh- you see Dan Bilzerian was at this thing? Oh no, no, I think I. Dan Bilzerian is running yeah. out of this right. thing, no. saying like, "We're under fire. I'm going to go get right. my gun." And you know, he's like, he's doing it in real time. If you told me we're not going to be yeah. talking about this a week later, right? That just wouldn't compute. But that's that is the the situation we're in. I mean, somehow it just didn't survive the Darwinian contest with what, whatever else was on social media. I don't media. really think that that's what happens. Well, so, well, so why aren't we talking about it? Well, that's, that's see, look, and you're starting to smile. Yeah. No, this is the thing that conspiracy theorists get de- dead wrong, which is you are allowed to notice some very weird anomaly and not have to say what it is you're noticing. Right? So, right. So, so yeah. my claim, like, but, but, but you don't buy my explanation, which is because there was not a, an immediate purchase on a larger story of motive. And this guy, you know, it was just the, uh, no. not a lot of information came out about this guy that was salient. It just we're so deluged by other stuff. Yes. Most of it Trumpian. Correct. You're not that, uh, you're okay. not correct, in my opinion. Okay. So let me That's give interesting. So, well, so the way but, I would say but, it. But whoever's right or wrong, I'm just saying that this belief that I ha- now have. That we have we have a different relationship to information now. Uh, in we can years. agree that we're cycling through things yeah. very quickly, but yeah. that was a spectacular. There's a reason we're talking it about. It was amazing, it. yeah, because it's anomalously weird how fast that story disappeared. Oh yeah. Now one of the things that you we have to we have to talk about in that in that realm is Dana Boyd and her discussion of strategic silence. So that's your search string people uh, playing mm-hmm. along at home. Strategic silence is a doctrine of some kind that says that news media should not report the news because of its potential impact. And where was this articulated? Um, You should check out Data and Society, which is a particularly interesting organization, which fingered uh, our friends as the alternative influencer network. Oh, right, right. 
And oh, yeah. Dana Boyd, who um, I believe is sort of in our circles, uh, in the tech circles, um, starts talking about the need for strategic this is silence. A, a, a girl Dana or a boy Dana? A female. Okay. Somebody I okay. perceive yeah. to be female. Yeah, I don't. Got, I, 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 don't I now Dana. don't want to touch. Yeah. Okay. A human named Dana Boyd. Right. Um, and strategic silence. And she also talks about data gaps, if I'm not mistaken, if I have my terminology right. Hmm. And so then you have to look at things like style guides, like the AP style guide or the New York Times style guide, which is the way in which people are directed to report news stories. Is there a danger of copycat killings? So there may be a body of thought around what does one do around mass shootings so that we don't have future mass shootings? Yeah. Or if this is particularly exciting to certain people, should we publish the manifesto? So right. as you start to understand what the meta rules around these things are, some of those could be innocent. Well, I, well, I think I think there, some are better than innocent. I think some are benign and we've been slow to adopt them. I think I think I think the fact that I don't know this guy's name is probably a good thing for the world. And that was that was part of the style new style guide. You just don't. Did you read the New Zealand uh, shooters manifesto? Uh, no, but I, I part of it. But yeah, I haven't I, I haven't read. Okay. The whole thing. No. So that, but uh, like what I don't want is I don't want somebody saying um, we should not read the, the, we should criminalize reading the New Zealand shooters manifesto. But by the way, let me tell you, uh, he told, he told us all that Candace Owens was his inspiration. Right. right. Because that's not what the shooter did. So now we, well, no, no one wants to criminalize. It. I'm just saying that you, no, no, no. It, I'm it, saying something it's, much it's, more disturbing. It's Sam. appropriate for the, for journalists to worry that, merely shining a light you know, pointing a camera at this new atrocity is the the should be the the default setting right like name the guy let's, let's go get into his story let's find out why he did it and do, Same, do all of this in public in, we're in such a much more dangerous place in my opinion and, and i i but no but maybe we're we're talking past each other here it's just that it is we've been very slow to realize th that the part of the the mimetic contagion here is the copycat effect. The, the fact that people in, in their own perverse way, these people are being martyred and lionized just by the, just the, the mere sharing of this information. Let's about agree them. that in a better world, we would have a situation by which we would not want to communicate. We relatively, want to make these people famous. We don't. There's, there's it, fame is part of the motive, right? Posthumous fame, even is part of the motive. So as part, if it, even if it's not part of the motive, it's part of what is attractive to the living, aspiring uh, gunman. So right? First of all, let me steal man your position to make sure I'm getting it. And then I, yeah. I can take issue with you and you'll, we'll see whether I'm okay. adding or subtracting. Right. I think what you're saying is, is that because of the information quality and the fame quality and the inspirational quality uh, to copycat killers, that communicating the information that somebody wished to communicate, provided they're willing to make a down payment in in terms of uh, dead bodies uh, taken, you know, lives taken out of this world. Uh, I'm not even focused on the manifesto. I'm focused on just uh, just naming the person. Okay, you know, just... you're sympathetic at some level with the concept of strategic silence. Yeah, yeah. I would be sympathetic with the concept of strategic silence if I trusted 
the people who are supposed to manage it. But that's, I'm trying to get to the next la- layer, right. which I is understand that, that concern. Yeah. I am very concerned that the people who are enthusiastic about strategic silence are interested in telling us partial information about all that's of these t- things so that we cannot actually tell what the hell just happened. Well, yeah, so you just changed the topic to jihadism and we're perfectly in agreement because yes, they will elide the religious identity of perpetrators in various contexts uh, and actually hide information uh, from us, right? So they'll, they'll correct. You'll, you'll see you'll see something happen. It'll the, the media will pretend it's inexplicable, right? Like the you know, the Orlando shooting. It's like maybe this guy was just it was his repressed homosexuality that was that was the problem, right? And yet those who have a little bit of information recognize that this is a clear-cut case of jihadism and indoctrination and a spread of, and the consequences of certain ideas. And the analogous situation on the other side would be, what if we were going to systematically conceal evidence of, you know, you know white supremacy being the motive for a certain right, But what attack. I'm trying to say right. is that in all of these killings, like you just pointed out that the Unabomber, you read, reread the Unabomber's manifesto. Right. Now, the Unabomber wrote a story called Ship of Fools, which I thought was relatively interesting, um, about people losing their heads in social justice and society there's, getting There's scuttled. some of that in the manifesto, too. Yep. I mean, he's, he's very uh, critical of, of he's not, the Not a dumb man, yeah. that, no. that Kaczynski guy. Yeah. However, the point was is that you were able to mine that for information and then you were able to reach some pretty interesting conclusions about where Kaczynski was relative to society in general. You trusted yourself. Right. Okay. My guess is that when it comes to jihadis, you are more interested in communicating the information about what the motivational structure is because it, it is prescriptive that something might be done. However, well, it is well, also... Actually, there's another reason. It's, it's, it's not just that it's prescriptive. It, it may not be. It's just that is it there are more there's more contact between there are more levers to play with yeah, to try to control the situation. A, it, and it's a much larger problem. No kidding. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But on the other hand, if I look at the New Zealand shooters and the Squirrel Hill shooters manifestos, right. it's disgusting and it has content. Yeah. And you know, the way on which I can explain to people how all of the open border type stuff is going to cause future problems is just to say, uh, you may not think of a country the way I, I do or somebody else, but imagine that somebody comes to your home, uh, as a guest and you give them the key and they say, I hope you don't mind, but I noticed that there were a lot of people on skid row today who didn't have anything to eat, no place to sleep. So I ran off 2000 copies of, of your key. And I hope we can adopt all those people um, right. when they come over later tonight because I gave them the address and the security code. Now, if if that starts to rattle around in your brain, you don't feel good about it. You may not conceive of your country as a house with a with a, a front door and a security code and rules as to who gets in and out. But they do. And some of those yeah. people are going to go crazy and they're going to kill people. And I know that to be the case. And it's not that I'm sympathetic with a synagogue shooter or a mosque killer. Fuck those guys. The point is, is that we are not trying to get the information because we have this class of people, this intermediating class Mm. that I don't trust as far as I can throw them and that you still have more residual trust in. In other words, my feeling about data and society 
is, is that I understand all sorts of things that they're trying to do, but they're super dangerous. Like yeah, they are incredibly yeah. dangerous in part because they're going to be backed by people like Bill and Melinda Gates yeah. or the well, Ford no, Foundation or whatever it, it is. This is, the, this is the Southern Poverty Law Center problem. Exactly. And other guys. Yeah. So it's, you know, I, I think you and I have been talking past each other a little bit here. All right. I, I totally agree that in this case, we can't really trust the gatekeepers. What The, the only thing that I was uh, expressing open, open-mindedness about or agreement about uh, with respect to strategic silence is there is this, you know... I would trust otherwise... you to do strategic silencing. Well, in some ways, there's, it's impossible. It's like, take it out of the... No, because atrocity. you know that. Yeah, but like, but, but like, there's the atrocity side of it, which is its own thing. But just take, a, take the, 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 um, the case of famous suicides, right? We know that suicide is contagious, right? And, there's a, you know, this has a name, the, the Werther effect, you know, based on Goethe's novel, The, the Sorrows of Young Werther. So there, there's the fact that a, a significantly, pro, a sufficiently prominent person who's got any kind of, especially, and this is true, I think, for any suicide, but especially if there's some sort of Byronic, you know, romantic gloss that can right. be put on it, you know, um, suicides go up and suicides go up in ways that are, you know, horrific, but plane crashes go up. Right. And we believe, you know, I don't know if, if the data has changed on this, but as of, you know, 20 years ago or whenever this was done, I think this was in, um, might've been in, in Caldini's book, Influence. Um, the uh, s- plane crashes go up and the interpretation of that is that some number of airline pilots commit suicide with everyone on board. Right. You know, the, I mean, we know that's happened before uh, there's there's one f- famous case of Egypt. that but yeah. um but you know it, it just out of the statistics that seems to be suggested uh but so what do you do when anthony bourdain commits suicide how do you cover that story there's got there has to be some style guide around how you cover it and it's not and uh, at, at one point it, it could look like an unwillingness to actually get at the truth but what you're, what, what you're, what's actually motivating you is not an unwillingness to get at the truth. It's just you, you're, you're aware of the, the potential contagion effect here, depending on what, the, what the, the actual story is. So I can't figure out where our energy differs. I agree with you that in theory, strategic silence, like don't publicize things where the benefit is very slight right. and the cost is enormous. I get it. But right now we're in some different place, which is that a lot of us, I mean, just don't trust any of the gatekeepers. Like there's not one gatekeeper that I want making that decision for me at the moment. And, you know, in particular, it's very weird that I like, I get the concept Dana, but I don't trust you because you came out with this alternative influencer network thing, which had zero methodology on it. So you're volunteering. And it's all guilt by association. And it's, and and, you know, Noam Chomsky talks to Stefan Molyneux and he's not included, but it's just, it's total nonsense. And the the person who wrote it has been revealing herself as a complete activist rather than a a researcher. Right. So there's, there's total breakdown on that thing. What I'm confused by is the more of this kind of shielding, that we have, the more likely we're going to have four more years of Donald Trump. And I can only imagine what's going to happen after 
right. uh, a, an eight-year Trump presidency? Are we going to move to the next level of really unexpected candidate? Yeah. We have got to realize that we're making... Now for the most shocking rose ceremony ever. <laughs> we, we've got to realize that what we're doing is we're making people crazy because they can see that it's the Truman Show. Yeah. And so if we had a discussion where we... Like, had you heard strategic silence before? I think I'd... So from I, me, I know... Yeah, I, I think I'd heard the phrase, but... But like, the, the we're not having a national concept. discussion yeah. and coming to a national consensus about this, or we're going to use strategic silence when it's jihadi violence, right. and we're not going to use it when it's white supremacist violence. Yeah, yeah or in a different way. We're going to leak right. particular information, provided it goes this way and not that way. That's what's going to cause an infinite series no, of I, trumps. Yeah. Well, yeah, and more importantly for this topic, I think it's it's imperative that we understand what what is actually going on and what, why people are doing what they're doing and what the, what the, the, the scale of the, the relative risks are. And I mean, just how big a problem is, I mean, my, my last podcast, which I haven't released yet is on this topic, just talking to someone who's written a history of white supremacy and white power in, in the U S and I'm just trying to get a handle on how big a problem it is. And I, and I came away from that podcast convinced more or less that, Nobody knows how big a problem it is, right? So, but there's, there's a, there's a, in this particular space, there's the possibility of conflating the the new memetics of 4chan and 8chan, where where you have incel teenagers trafficking right. in in Holocaust imagery and you know and lynching photos, exactly, right, just to get a rise out of the normies, right, where it's not actually the the ideological software program that we're worried about when we're worried about the KKK and neo-Nazis and their sincere attempt to, well, to, there's that to, and to there's create also a coup the in the U S right. I agree with so. that. And then we also have this very different situation in which we have a problem on the left where I don't think that the left is as yet, um, has the same propensity for violence that the KKK style white supremacists had, right. but it's been totally normalized, this far left woke destruction of the basic ability to think inside of the sense-making organs, whereas there's no normalization of Stormfront, um, right. and people are going to try to say that the president you know, is the normalization of that, and I agree there are a lot of problems with the presidency, but I don't think that that's yeah. Stormfront, exactly. um, yeah. and so in that picture, I think what I'm increasingly coming to the conclusion of surrounds the idea that we're trying to have very low resolution conversations, which is what the baby boomers and the traditional media taught us to do. We have these very small sound bites. And they, do you think the left is worse than the right? Are you kidding me? Well, there's no way to square that because it's multivariate and it depends which way you compressed worse or better to say which thing actually, you know, right. do you talking about potential energy or are you talking about realized energy? Yeah. yeah. And also there's just the fringe is not the same, is not the same thickness on the far left and the far right. Like the, the far, the far left fringe has much more of effect, uh, much more of an effect on the mainstream than the far right fringe does. I mean, the far left fringe has affected how the New York Times does its thing and how tech exactly does its thing right. and how, it, and you know, you don't have if if we had members of the KKK determining what gets published on the opinion page of the New York Times, right? That would be the analogous problem, 
Right. And and that's and, it, we don't yeah, see it. We don't see it. No, and yeah. I, and I, we can't discuss it in my opinion because of the the key thing that we were supposed to do with long form stuff um is to raise the level of resolution possible in the discussion. We didn't push right. out enough terminology, enough sort of new patterns of thinking, and that's the work left to be done. Can I ask you one or two last questions and then... Uh, yeah, but you're, you're now at war with the capacity of a human bladder, so... Is know, that right? That, that's the ultimate gatekeeper. So this is like sort of a personal question, and it has to do with the fact that I know you've reviewed some of the episodes of the show that you've been partially responsible for helping uh-huh. birth. Um, do you have any feedback for me uh, as to what's worked, what hasn't? Um, I can sort of talk to you a little bit about where I'm thinking about taking the show. And um, are you happy uh, with it or what would you like to see from the portal? I have not, well, I don't well, think I've asked well, this from I've, anybody else. Yeah, no, I'm just, I'm incredibly happy you're doing it. I think it's, you're the right man for the job. So you're, you should be uh, honored that you'd say that you, you should be. Uh, I'm just, you know, it's about time. Right. Like I've been way, I've been nudging you. To you have been nudging, but like, it's time. a little bit intimidating to, yeah. you know, for some reason I, I, I broke into this sort of top echelon of people with enormous audiences and really professional content. So it's, uh, yeah. you but know, no, but what I, I, what I think you're doing is, uh, novel in that, uh, why? Well, so, uh, I mean, you don't, you, you only have, so much control over what you get because you don't, you, the other person has to show up and you're not quite sure in many cases what they're going to bring. But like in your case, you, you had a conversation with David Wolpe, right? Who I've debated several times, uh, both in public and in private. And you had a great conversation with him, right? So like you had a very, you had a much better conversation with him than I've ever had with That's him. That's not fair. Well, it is fair. No, it's it's no, no, it's not fair because no, because that conversation wouldn't have happened if I hadn't observed your conversations with him. And I sort of watched, but I've observed my conversations with him and I guarantee you the next conversation I have with him will still be worse than the conversation you had with him. Right. Because Uh, I, because I'm going to feel like I need to fight certain battles. Right. Like I'm not going to let him get away with certain things, which you are right to let him get away with one, because you honestly feel like you're not, you're not, you don't occupy precisely my position with respect to those points. So you're not being dishonest. You just see it differently. But two, you also are trying to have a different conversation. You're not trying to pressure test all of his ideas, you know, about God, uh, whenever they surface you, um, although you did go in that direction a little bit, you were actually trying to have a conversation about the, the richness of Judaism without coming in with my agenda, which is, Clearly, we, we have to get past this this uh, parochial, uh, you know, balkanization of our of, of of humanity based on these you know Iron Age philosophies, right? We have to find some new modern non-sectarian uh, equivalent to everything we think we care about in religion. That's not your game, and because it's not your game, you had a much better experience of David Wolpe than I I get. So that that's a, and it was but, a conjecture that there was more there. Yeah. You well, know, in part born out, well, it was born from watching you guys interact and figuring that, in fact, I don't think David was particularly attached to the rigid interpretation of the text uh, in a literal sense, nor even to the concept of an anthropomorphic like deity. Oh, yeah, I know he's not. And I mean, the first time I debated him, maybe it was the second time with Hitch, 
in one of the in the middle of one of those debates, I was sort of blindsided by his his lack of commitment to a to a a personal deity because I th- I said something that presupposed that he believed in a god that could hear our prayers. I see. And he said, Why would ma- you believe that? What makes you think I believe in a god who can hear prayers? Right. And you know he's a conservative rabbi, so this is you know this is a this was a surprise to me. But anyway, I've I've changed my view of what what to expect there as a result of that. But still, there are things he would say that would get me bogged down in the way that I got bogged down with Jordan Peterson in our first podcast, you know, a debate, a two-hour conversation about the nature of truth, right? So with Jordan, I had to decide, okay, because we, we've just put a bunch of live events on the calendar and we need to find a way to have a an enjoyable conversation sure. in addition to disagreeing where we're going to disagree, I have to, there has to be a different geometry to it here. It just can't always just, you know, dive straight to the, you know, the, the, into the, the the true basin of attraction, which is, you know, what, let's figure out exactly what you mean because I, I smell something fishy, right? So, um, but so I thought it was great, your conversation with David, and I really enjoyed it. I learned a lot, you know, so like I, I learned stuff from him that I wouldn't learn had I been having the conversation because I, I would have had a very I can't tell you how much that means to me. Thank you. Yeah. So, so I know, I think what you're doing here is uh, bound to be super unique because you're, um, I mean, not. I mean, you're a, you're a a real polymath doing this, and there are not a lot of people who are doing podcasts uh, w- with the same kind of wealth of information you have on so many fronts. So well, I, I, I'm flattered, and I really appreciate what you're saying. The odd thing is, is that um, it's not really supposed to be an interview show, mm-hmm. and we've done a bunch of interviews yeah. in part. You know, Joe said something, Joe Rogan said something to me early on. He said, look at my earliest podcast. He's like, stop worrying about whether it's perfect. I was just clowning around with my friends with a webcam. And like, yeah. I went back to the original Joe Rogan experiences. And he's yeah. not kidding. I haven't done that. Yeah, oh, I you'll enjoy it. Ones, yeah. The problem is, is that people are really angry about everything that happens as I'm beginning. It's like, you know, why, why, why is the glass on the edge of the table and... You know the uh, the the plosives are too loud, and you know there's, there's right. like a lot of yeah. stuff that is um, there. There is no introductory period because weirdly this thing was discussed uh, on the Rogan program, and so it right. debuted on Apple because of their yeah, ridiculous yeah. algorithm yeah. at number there, one. Eight hundred thousand podcasts, and you were number one. Exactly, yeah. which I've never been remotely close to since. Right. And even though the podcast has grown in listenership, so partially what's happening is that we're just trying to find a format. Um, and to get comfortable with the idea. But a lot of what it's supposed to do is to go into intellectual territory that isn't based on an interview with a guest to see whether or not we can bring uh, an enormous number of people closer to the most transcendent, solid intellectual achievement Mm. that is on offer. Because in general, it feels to me like there's this monastery where all the good stuff is kept and almost nobody ever visits or reads any of it. Right. And so you're saying you're speaking specifically of, of, of your wheelhouse of physics. No. Or or just anything that interests you that biology, music. Right. Okay. Um, yeah, but language. But that, just just to make sure what I, that I understand what you're saying, you're saying that you're envisioning many podcasts being just you and a, a whiteboard or something where you're some exploring. kind of graphics. Right. So I, I think graphics are going to be important. 
Right. I think there are going to be some difficult topics um, that are going to be pretty heavy going intellectually that I'm going to try to make as easy as I can. Hmm. Um, But to partially leverage the fact that, and and this is kind of a a theme running um, below the surface, which occasionally like magma comes up through, through the crust uh, because it was so difficult for me to understand anything that was going on in my junior high school and high school years because of symbolic issues and learning learning style differences. Uh, a lot of what happened was that I was able to put things together um, out of sheer necessity without going through the symbolic channel. And it's my belief that even if people don't see themselves like, let's say, learning disabled, mm. that the symbolic channel is where we get stuck. That most people, if you show them a page of equations they tune out. Right. And it's very difficult to figure out, well, what can you communicate that isn't an analogy, um, but that actually gets people to an understanding of sort of the, just the majesty of, of, of human intellectual achievement. And so the hope is going to be that if we can get some, some decent production values and get the ad models to work, mm. um, that we can start experimenting with some sort of hybrid graphical and discussion and solo that'd be great yeah yeah Yeah. and and i think you should explore it'd be fascinating for you to explore the the alternative learn learning paradigm learning disability uh, question uh i mean people would find that incredibly useful and inspiring if you if you if you if there was something there to explore that would be especially if it would be actionable on the basis of well the thing for parents or or, or so many of us teenagers, you know, like I, I can't tell you how much hopelessness I produced in my parents mm. because no matter what I tried to do, nothing worked. And I know that that experience of a bright, interested kid who just can't buy a base hit in school is duplicated in probably 15, 20% of the households in America. It's like an enormous right. unknown population. What my hope is, is to show people why the sort of learning disabled or dyslexic mind might have superpowers. Do you, do you actually have a, a diagnosis of dyslexia? I've been di- dyslexia, dysgraphia, something called kinesthetic reinforcement. You know, people have, t- uh, I haven't, did, did you get these as a teenager or is this something? That, things were in their infancy back then. There were right. batteries of tests that are different. Like, you know, there was this Kurdish word test when they assumed nobody knew Kurdish. Uh-huh. I didn't know Kurdish for sure. Um, and they tested to see whether, uh, you could remember a bunch of words you'd probably never seen. And in one list, you wrote them out and in one list you didn't to aid in the memory. Mm -hmm. And so when I got back a test, this was at at Harvard, um, I was like very high nineties in lots of different areas. And then one area, my score plummeted to like third percentile. Right. I said, what is that? Somebody said, well, that's kinesthetic reinforcement. I said, well, what does that mean? They said, well, were you to take notes, you would erase everything that you're learning. Right, right. And I said, what did you just say? Uh-huh. And I realized that my note taking had wiped out my now, entire education uh, right. up to that point. Well, now, why would you have taken a test like this at Harvard? Uh, I was struggling. I was, okay. I was in the most symbolically dependent subject. I mean, at some point I'll get into my history in, in mathematics. Um, but there was no one remotely like me in my situation as a PhD student at Harvard. And it was the worst possible ostensible mis you know, mismatch you could imagine because 
math lives in symbols. It yeah. isn't symbols, yeah, yeah. but the symbols are really crucial for understanding what's going on. And that's exactly where I'm blocked. And the hope that I have is if I can get around symbols in large measure for myself, mm. can I do it for people who aren't even necessarily blocked on learning no, channels? I, I would love that because I, like I have, you know, I consider myself more or less, you know, you know by comparison, innumerate because like I, you know, I took math, you know, in high, in high school, it's not that I would, I mean, I was sort of equivalently good on, on both sides, you know, both humanities and math. I mean, it was, it was not obvious that I shouldn't be pursuing math, but I never, you know, like after, once I did calculus in high school, I just never got math. Like I never, I never got, it was, it was just work and I never really got it. And then, you know, I mean, I've, you know, I've just taken, you know, mathematical logic and statistics you know, at the college level, but like my, my math education stopped at a point because I hit a wall of, of one, just, you know, lack of exposure to the beauty of it. I mean, I'm like a fan of math now, you know, like a, in, in terms of its broad concepts, but, um, I hit a, the, the burden of having to grapple to learn the language of the symbolism was high enough that it just, it, it's crippling. There was there was no there was not enough reason to struggle with it, and I just you know I just this is bounced why learning off, disabilities, you know? if you can overcome them, end up in part as this incredible superpower. Because, and I, and I talk about this in terms of color blindness. So both my brother and I are colorblind in a standard way, um, but we make the point about contrast blindness because there's a trade off between whether you see color better right. than others or worse, or yeah. whether you see contrast better. So. To the extent that you, what you see is learning disabilities is mysterious to you. Like, why would this be retained in such a large portion of the population? Right. It's because I think it has the characteristic of being the cost that is paying for another superpower relative to somebody who's not blocked on those channels. And like, for example, I don't know whether you notice the objects that are around here. The, the Klein bottles. I saw. I uh, I saw that. But, yeah. Well, we, oh yeah. I haven't. I haven't. So focused for example, on those, yeah. that's Bathsheba Grossman's uh, art. Uh -huh. And that's a 24 cell, which is the unique uh, new analog of a platonic solid that is not found. At, sorry. The convex polytopes are the analogs of the platonic solids in dimension four. This is pushed back into dimension three, and that's the unique uh, convex polytope that has no analog directly in dimension three. So then the other one that you have there is the analog of the dodecahedron. So, so what I mean, this is a, a three-dimensional projection of a four-dimensional object? object. Okay. So like, you know, if you've seen the Tesseract, that yeah. is the right. hypercube, which yeah. is the three-dimensional model that represents a four-dimensional um, structure. Right. This right here is pretty directly the analog of the dodecahedron in four dimensions projected back into three dimensions. Now, when you, and again, this is my uh, topology is, is, is a layman's topology, but the, um, are some projections back into three dimensions uh, far more evocative yeah. of, of the four dimensional object yeah, you'd, than you'd others? Yeah, you'd want to see a lot of them so that you could see, so that you could understand. Right. So, how do you have an internal sense of how much you understand or don't understand the higher dimensionality of an object based on the its three dimensional 
Well, for example, if we took a regular Klein bottle here, right. and for those of you at home, uh, I guess we, we should be talking about what we're doing on video. Yeah, right, right. Um, so I have a glass uh, bottle where the neck has been passed through to what would be called the punt. And in three dimensions, it appears to intersect the side of the bottle. But if you had an extra dimension represented by the amount of blueness in the bottle, and we colored this blue in the bell mm -hmm. clear here, you could see literally in four dimensions, this doesn't intersect itself because this part of the glass would be clear and that part of the glass would be blue. Hence, they're separated by some dimension that we can't represent spatially. Right. So by mixing spatial dimensions with colored dimensions, I claim you can actually see in four dimensions that this thing doesn't run into itself. The Klein bottle appears to intersect. And mathematically, does that, it, does that have the same logic as a Mobius strip? Is it just two Mobius bands sewn together? Okay. Right. Now, the point that I was making right. is that that is the, an example of an object where you don't realize you can see four dimensions by just adding a color dimension to spatial right. dimensions. Right. So I can give you lots of intuition pumps to, and this is what I did on the Rogan program with the hop vibration. I called it the most important object in the universe, not because the hop vibration is, but it's the only example of a principal fiber bundle, which is the underpinning of really the most fundamental physics we have. Mm. Um, and my intention is to read one paragraph of Ed Witten with my audience. So, you know, Oprah has a book club or had a book club. Right. So I'm going to just try to get through one paragraph, which I think is the most important paragraph ever written in the English language, not because Ed Witten's prose is so beautiful, not because it's free of error, mm. but because it actually makes an attempt to say what our most deep notions of reality are in a single paragraph with relatively few symbols and unknown words. So maybe to do a, a paragraph club where other people do a book club. And yeah, so the, awesome. The hope is to really start off with conversations. But if people are, are following along at home and they say, where's the portal? Uh, we're just getting started. This is the open, th these are the opening yeah. shots. Yeah, but I, I would encourage you as a, even as a side gig to the portal, maybe this is not podcast material, this, maybe this is a, a online course or something, but to find a route in to higher mathematics for the, the symbol blocked uh, yeah, but I want to do, I want to awesome. do music. Yeah. I want, I want to do the unity of knowledge. Um, all the stuff that people don't even know is out there to be found because I believe that, you know, I call this transcendence hacking, that the feeling of transcendence that often induces religious feelings is really better purposed as a guide to what is it, what is worth paying special notice to? towards in a world drowning in distraction mm. and that feeling of oh my god like this thing here i don't know if you've seen this no i'm pointing at a crystal cube um that is a three-dimensional projection of an eight-dimensional root system of the 248 dimensional exceptionally group e8 so this is sort of the most complicated is exceptional it, object known is this your nemesis's uh well, he doesn't object. own it. In fact, I was yeah. on it before he was. Okay. I abandoned What's it. What's his name? Garrett, Garrett Lisi. Lisi. Yeah. 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 But it, everyone should know that it's there right. and worry about it, uh, whether they're a professional mathematician right. or not. So the, the idea, I wasn't planning to talk about the objects, is to leave Easter eggs and clues all over the place so that people start to habituate themselves to the idea that you don't need angels 
uh, or magic texts in order to commune with something that uh, gives you the feeling that maybe we're not totally alone. And that doesn't have to be an animate thing that one, uh, you know, worships. It can be just the wonder of my God, there's so much more mystery than anyone knew was, was here even a short time ago. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, keep going. I'm, I'm enjoying the ride. All right. Well, Sam, thanks very much uh, for coming by. You're welcome to come back anytime. And uh, thanks for helping launch us all those years ago with the first podcast we did over, over at your studio. Nice. Nice. So you've been through the portal with Sam Harris. Please subscribe to us on Apple, uh, iTunes, or Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. And please check us out on YouTube. Make sure to subscribe and uh, click the bell if you want to be notified for future episodes. Thanks for hanging in there. Be well.